Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dan Druff-Wittellis. This is being broadcast live and recorded on February 22nd, 2019. We did start late tonight, but you know, better late than never, I thought we were not going to do radio this week because I woke up with a sore throat on Wednesday when the show was originally scheduled. I thought it was likely that I would miss a full week, but uh, here I am two days later. And we will probably be back on Wednesday or maybe Thursday next week. There will be a show next week for sure. I'm just trying to figure out which day is the best since we're doing this one on Friday. want to quickly tell you about the free roll, which has been already delayed once and is going right now, but you can still get in. It's a $50 free roll. We don't have the big money this week, but that, that happens sometimes. This, this time, a little bit light, but it's still 50 bucks we're giving away. And it started at 9.05. It was originally scheduled for 8.45. I delayed it to give some people time to get in who are listening to the show. I I hate when the free roll starts before the show, but sometimes it happens. But I did move it to 9.05. So you have until 9.30 p.m. Pacific. This person keeps calling me over and over from some number in 6.50. But we're doing the intro here, so we're not taking that call. Anyway. The free roll is starting, it started at 9.05, you head till 9.30 p.m. Pacific time to get in there. First place, $25, second place, $15, third place, $10. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, to learn about the rules for winning the free money. Otherwise, you may not qualify. The money from the free roll, or for the free roll, the money for the free roll, Came from I am Greek, seventeen dollars. Mister Smith, nine 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 nine, fifteen dollars. Mulva gave fifteen dollars at the last minute, and I threw in another three just to make it a fifty dollar free roll, so we don't go under the fifty mark because it's embarrassing to be under the fifty mark. So twenty five, fifteen, and ten are the three prizes this week. And if you sit late, which you can do until nine thirty, then you still start with a full stack. So get in there. If you need your account validated to get in, you'll need to handle that before the show starts, preferably days before. I always get these frantic messages, oh, I can't get in. Well, I don't want to handle that during the show. So if you can't get in, then just be happy it's not a big free roll this week. If you want to call the show, our phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. That's our number. And we also have the Mount Charleston line. It's located on a mountain near Las Vegas, Mount Charleston. You didn't have to go to Mount Charleston this year to see snow in Vegas, though. A lot of snow in Vegas this year. Very, very cold this year in the West, which we'll talk about tonight. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston number. 702-430-1808. It's a separate number into the show. It's an old 70s rotary telephone, which forwards to me wherever I go. It's located in a cabin on top of Mount Charleston. I have to get up there and check it sometime soon. There's been a lot of snow in that area. The call to listen line is something you can use to listen to the show at any time, whether we're live or whether it is running our streaming reruns, which is what runs when we are not live. It just picks a random show and runs it. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, the call to listen line. It does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer or the internet. All you need is a phone that can dial. That's it. 
605-313-0736. Never slows down, never freezes, never buffers. It's got a no-buffer guarantee. It's a great way to listen to the show. You can use Amazon Alexa to listen to the show. To do so, say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn. And to listen to the last archived episode, say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Podcast. Or sorry, let me start that again. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast on TuneIn. So you just have the word podcast if you want to hear the archives. And you don't say the word podcast if you want to hear whatever is running live or the streaming reruns. Other ways to listen to the show, TuneIn. The app TuneIn can be used to listen live to the show or in the archives. You can also find archived shows in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or just play it directly from the Poker Fraud Alert server. Just go over and click on the MP3 file in the radio forum of Poker Fraud Alert, and it will play. In fact, Apple devices can play them without any kind of additional apps. It just plays. That's how I actually listen when I want to go back and listen to a specific episode. If you want a new way to listen to the show that is available on other shows, let me know, and I'll see if I can add it, as long as it doesn't cost too much Jew gold to do, because I run this site at a loss. I really do. I lose money on this site. Here's the agenda for tonight, and then we'll get going. Someone suggested I cut down the intro even further because my voice has been dying out at the end of shows. And I said, hey, that's a good idea. That is a good idea, because I have not made it through the agenda for the last few shows. I get to near the end, and my voice is all worn down, and ah, just tough. It's tough having this LPR. It really is. But I, I feel a lot better than last year. Last uh, August, September, there's no comparison between then and now. Anyway, here's the agenda. You might remember in November of 2018, I played... An 08 tournament at the bike. It was a WSOP ring event. I got down to the final 10 with near average chips, then lost every hand I played and was not only out, but out as the bubble boy. That was frustrating. So I played my first 08 since then in the LAPC, the Commerce LAPC. And I ran deep again. How did I do? I will let you know. And there were some people associated with Poker Fraud Alert in that same tournament also running deep. I'll talk about them too. Card rooms are not always populated with the salt-of-the-earth fine type of people. Not not always the type of people you'd want to bring home to your mom. A lot of shady people. A lot of dishonest people. A lot of scumbaggish people you got to be careful. And that's what a woman found out in Atlantic City when she turned her back for 10 seconds and a guy at the table stole her purse and walked out of the casino. But there's even more to the story. The guy came back with money he stole from the purse to continue playing poker. So I'll tell you what happened with that, and also, the victim of this is directly related to someone that most of you know of, or perhaps even know personally, a listener to the show, a very frequent listener to the show, 
who is a professional poker player. This is actually his sister. So we will touch upon that fascinating story after I give you my little personal 08 update. We've talked before about civil forfeiture on this show. There is a Supreme Court ruling that has just come down related to civil forfeiture, which while this ruling has nothing to do with poker or even gambling for that matter, civil forfeiture very much affects poker players. I will tell you why it does, and I will tell you why this ruling was favorable. Vanessa Russo, I have to give you guys an update on her. Some She's had another life change. And she announced it on Twitter. So I will tell you the latest going on with her. She's not in poker anymore. We've been following her follies on this show. So I can't stop now. I've got, I've got to continue to report on Vanessa Russo, who I, I think actually is a pretty fascinating individual. <laughs> not, not always fascinating in a way that's uh, healthy for her, but nonetheless fascinating. Here's something that isn't fascinating. There may be a super user or some other kind of cheater in the Limit Hold'em games on Bovada and Ignition. I will tell you what I have observed, and then I'll tell you what you can do about it if you observe the same thing. And I'll also tell you what I've done so far. The Aria has cut ties with Phil Ivey. Remember, Phil Ivey is embroiled in that legal situation with the Borgata, where he owes over $10 million to them as a result of that lawsuit having to do with his Baccarat play. We talked about that at length last week with attorney Eric Benzamokin. The Aria is an MGM property, and so is Borgata. Many people don't know what Borgata is because it wasn't always, but it is now. So it's only a matter of time until Aria decided to cut ties with Ivy, and they have renamed Ivy's room. We will talk about that and perhaps what other consequences Ivy might be suffering. Carl Icahn has revealed that he owns 10% of Caesars. That was a surprise. Most people did not know that. And he gave his recommendations of what Caesars should do going forward, including that he feels they should sell. <laughs> Poker Stars has upset people with their large reduction in points for tournament players. These are points that they earn. Uh, basically, it's benefits for playing. It's kind of a form of rakeback. Uh, this has been reduced, and people are angry because they thought poker stars had become all touchy-feely and player-friendly because they put on that successful PCA with a with a platinum pass and gave those free platinum passes away to 25K events there. And uh, the poker world was just loving them. Now they don't love them so much anymore. So we'll talk about that. Ocean Resort in Atlantic City has changed ownership again to continue the streak of failure for that particular property, which has changed hands a number of times since opening. Maybe we will finally get to the Facebook in-app purchase scandal, which I keep tabling. I I leave it to the end of the show, and then my voice is worn out by the end, and I say, ah, we'll talk about it next week. So maybe we'll get to it this week. Finally, 
California and Nevada are dealing with a record-setting, unusually cold winter. How cold is it? No, I don't have a punchline. But it was so cold that it snowed in the Los Angeles area. <laughs> that's, that's the absolute wrong sound effect. That, that's the absolute wrong sound effect. That's not what I meant to play. It's, it's not funny that it snowed here, but it did. It snowed. If you look at my Twitter, you can see I posted a picture of some mountains that are behind my house. And these aren't really tall mountains. It happened for the first time in a decade. And there's many areas around me and around Los Angeles where it snowed at low elevations. So we will talk about how cold that winter has been and why it's so unusual. So those are our topics. You may wonder, why am I talking about California and Nevada being cold when other parts of the country, like Chicago, had some bitter cold weather? Why, why am I talking about California and Nevada, which, for the most part, are never bitter cold? Though there are a few parts of California and Nevada that are bitter cold. But uh, why am I talking about it? Because this is a West Coast bias show. This show primarily focuses upon the areas of Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And I, I don't pretend otherwise. There's many East Coast biased shows out there. In fact, uh, there's East Coast biased networks like ESPN. That's very East Coast biased. So this is a West Coast biased show, and it always will be. Maybe a little bit less when we have Cal Watt on, but we we start too late for him usually. I can't find Trader Ruski tonight. I've got nobody, just me. Maybe we'll pick up Trader Ruski. He's not that hard to pick up usually because he's in the same time zone. Okay, I'm going to get going here. You've got two more minutes to get into the free roll. And then that's it. But I'll get going here, so maybe I can get through all the topics in a reasonable amount of time, and I can finish everything. That that would be great. I think I will, because there's no real long topic this week. Last week, I had all these long things I was talking about. And like I was done with like three topics and three hours had passed. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I feel worn out already. But this week, I think we have a lot of shorter topics. It's a good week to catch up on things. So I want to talk about my experience at the LA Poker Classic. As I did last year, I decided to play two events at the L.A. Poker Classic at Commerce, which is a very long-running tournament series. I decided to play the 1100 buy-in Limit Hold'em and the 1100 buy-in 08 events. They were actually back-to-back at 1 p.m., back-to-back meaning back-to-back days. One was on February 17th, one was on February 18th. Limit Hold'em was first. If I made day two of Limit Hold'em, then I would miss the 08, but I, if you make day two, you've made the final table, so that's not a bad problem to have. Since commerce is not that close to me, and of course there's traffic too, I decided that it would be foolish to drive all the way there, play the tournament at 1 p.m., play till probably later at night, then drive all the way back, and then in the morning drive all the way back to commerce again. So I got a hotel room there. I have not stayed in the Commerce Hotel, which is a Crown Plaza. It's called the Crown Plaza Commerce. 
I haven't stayed there in over a decade. But I booked the hotel there. Like uh, a good cheap Jew that I am, I, I re-rated it a few times by canceling and rebooking. I was smart enough not to book prepaid. Because uh, when you book prepaid, there's, there's a lot of bad things about doing that. I might as well tell you guys. You know, I, I, I hate to branch off into tangents and uh, cheap juice subjects, but I, I think it's important. You may be tempted when you book a hotel where it says advance booking, save, you book now, save 20%, blah, blah, blah. Seems like a good deal. I'll tell you why it really isn't. There's a few reasons. Uh, first of all, you're locking yourself out of, for changing anything. So if you get sick or decide not to go, uh, it's non-refundable. Now, that's not huge because you'll only be canceling a small percentage of your trips, but it's, it is nice to have that flexibility. But the bigger reasons you don't do it is because, uh, number one, you cannot re-rate it if the rate goes down, which in this case it did. It actually went down a good deal from the time I first booked it to when I uh, last booked it. I booked it and then just kept checking the rates, and if it went down, then I would cancel and rebook immediately. And there's no penalty. So you, you deny yourself the chance to do that. So often the 20% you're saving goes away or you end up losing money on it. And then the other problem is that if anything goes wrong, there's nothing they can do for you because you've already paid. They, they can't give you any money off your bill. Hotels will give you money off your bill if things go wrong. And they'll do it pretty easily if you ask for it. And when I say go wrong, I don't. it doesn't have to be a catastrophic problem. It can be that your, your room had a lot of maintenance problems and you had to wait for the maintenance guy for you know, 45 minutes. It, it could be that uh, you know, the, the shower didn't work right and you didn't know it till the morning when you want to go take a shower. Uh, it, it could be – there's one of many things that can happen there. It could be that your, your key keeps failing over and over again. Uh, you know, you guys have stayed in a lot of hotels. I'm sure you guys have had a big laundry list of hotel problems over the years, as have I. Some are minor annoyances, some are pretty big. And if you have not paid yet, hotels are pretty damn willing to knock off healthy portions of your bill, sometimes 20 or 30 bucks, sometimes they'll knock off half, sometimes they'll knock off the whole thing. Depends how big the problem was, and it depends the mood of the manager and, and also just their general customer service philosophy. But you want to have that flexibility. And if you're prepaid, you don't have that. So that's another good reason not to do it. So I, I didn't book prepaid. And also, I had mentioned a trick on here in a previous show how you can use Priceline Express deals. You can use a trick on there to save money. And the way you would do that is you go to the price line, you go to the express deals, you look up the area of commerce, and then you'd look at the hotels that are listed and you find the one that has the casino as an amenity. And you know that's commerce, even though they're not telling you it's commerce. And then you can book it and save money. Well, I realized that actually is not that good of a deal. In fact, I, I chose not to do it. Because number one, you are again prepaid and has all the problems I was just discussing. And number two, something I didn't realize until I went to go do it myself is that they charge fees, too. They charge like 10% extra of fees that they keep themselves, Priceline. So the money you're, quote, saving, you're, you're losing back to fees, which is really dirty. It's really dirty to say, hey, book with us, we'll save you 22%, and then they take 10% back in fees. That's, that's not saving you 22%. It's not. 
So I chose not to do that. Anyway, um, the stay at Commerce was fine. Uh, the only problem I had was that I I came early because the tournament's early. So usually check in 3 p.m. and I was there way before them because the tournament was at 1. So they were able to check me in early, which I appreciate, and I didn't have to pay extra for that. But they didn't have that many clean rooms, and I accepted one with two beds. And I had assumed that two beds meant two queens. Well, I don't think it was two queens. I believe I was receiving two doubles. Now, why does this matter if I was by myself? The problem with double beds is that they're short, and I'm a tall person, so I'm too long for a double bed. If I if I lie straight on a double bed, my feet will hang off, and it's very uncomfortable. Some people like their feet hanging off the bed. I hate it. So uh, throughout the whole night, I'm like tossing and turning because of this, and I sleep on this wedge. I sleep on this foam wedge now because of my LPR condition. Uh, if if I'm sleeping at a at, on a slope. It's not the most comfortable thing, but if I sleep on the slope, then that prevents that choking sensation I was having in August, which caused me all those terrible issues with anxiety and and depression and everything else. So I don't get that anymore, and part of it is because of that wedge I use. And this is not just a harebrained idea of mine. This is something suggested to anyone suffering from LPR. You can find it on websites everywhere. So I bring this wedge around. It's not very easy to travel with. It's pretty big. It's not heavy. It's just big. But uh, I have to put it under the sheets, which isn't that hard. But the problem is it's not easy to adjust while you're sleeping. So my, my feet are hanging off, and I can't just easily adjust that wedge. So I'm just kind of dealing with it all night and having a pretty crappy night of sleep. And finally, finally, I got myself up and turned the thing diagonally. So Because if I sleep diagonally on a double bed, I can barely fit. Barely. If I sleep straight, <laughs> then I don't fit. That was the one downside, so I'm never going to get double beds there again. Uh, I didn't know there were doubles. They said two beds. It's, you know, I was sure as queens. Uh, other than that, the stay was fine there. Uh, I expected it to be noisier. It was funny because I told them I don't want to face the freeway. I get up to the room they give me. It's facing the damn freeway. So I'm like, <laughs> but it was on the side, so I'm like, well, okay, it's not quite as bad. But it actually wasn't noisy at all. You could barely hear the freeway. So they actually insulated it pretty well. And I should have remembered this because when I stayed there more than 10 years ago, I didn't remember any freeway noise. So I uh, – maybe I was on the other side, but I didn't remember any noise from the highway. So, But, but they did a pretty good job keeping the sound out. And this this hotel was built in 2002. I watched it being built because uh, I used to drive past it all the time between where I worked at the time and where my then-girlfriend lived. So I would pass it and I'd watch the thing. I watched it being built even before I ever played there. So the Limit Hold'em tournament, uh, I, I just didn't do well. And yeah, at one point I had almost double starting stack, but I was never really kicking ass there. And then pretty quickly I uh, went in the toilet and lost. So I, I was not close to cashing in that. I was kind of I was like the middle of the pack in that one. I was I outlasted a little more than fifty percent of the field, so I didn't get destroyed, but I I didn't uh, come close to cashing. The 08 event the next day, uh, that one, I actually ran deep, just like I did at the bike. At my initial table of the 08 event, I had Ari Engel, Bodog Ari. Who listens to this show? Commerce 
has a very stupid thing with the registration, with the late registration. And that is if you register late, and not even like super late, just once they fill the tables and they just put everybody at a new table. So it's very easy to register late with your friends and collude. And I'm not saying this to give people advice on how to collude at the LAPC. I'm, I'm saying I'm, I'm giving this as a, a piece of a constructive criticism, which hopefully they will stop doing. The World Series used to do this years ago. They stopped, but they used to do this years ago. So Ari and I both late registered. I late registered because I had to check out and all that, and I didn't get that good of night of sleep, so slept as late as I could. But we both were at the same table. Ari is mostly a no-limit hold'em tournament player, but uh, yeah, he held his own there. And we played some hands together. Some, uh, some I won, some he won. We both ran deep. We both made, I think, the final 22 or something like that. They were paying 12 spots. Also at that tournament was the Hansen kid, Bart Hansen, and he ran deep as well. So I, I think like in the final 25 or 24, among them were me, the Hansen kid, and Ari Engel. And those, those two listened to this show and have uh, both been on this show before. So I said, oh, cool. We, what if we have like a, what if poker fraud alert associated people take up a third of the final table? Well, when it was all said and done, by the time, well, forget all said and done. By the time there were 18 people left, I will tell you the number of people that were left associated with Poker Fraud Alert. Zero point zero. Yeah. Ari and Bart busted before me, and I went out 19th. I had an interesting hand come up, and for those of you that don't know Omaha, this is going to seem like Greek to you. But uh, I was getting kind of short-stacked, and, uh, well, the blinds were 2K, 4K, and I had about 55K behind, and I was in the small blind, already had posted 2K. Under the gun raised, so that makes it 8K, and under the gun plus one made it three bets, which becomes 12K. This is a limit event, remember. So it comes, it folds to me, and I'd had to put 10 more K in to call if I wanted to see the flop. My hand was ace, four, four, queen with three hearts, including the ace of hearts. So I would have the nut flush draw if hearts were to flop, though an extra heart would be out because I had three hearts in my hand. It wasn't ace, four, four, queen. It was ace, four, queen, queen. Sorry. Ace, four, queen, queen with three hearts. So basically I had pocket queens, which might work towards a high. I had ace, four, which works towards a low because Omaha eight is a high-low game. And then I had hearts also. I had three hearts. You don't want three hearts, but I had three hearts. So I did have a heart draw if one were to flop. Problem is, ace four is not the best low to be chasing because it's like third low, so you could be dominated. And queens, uh, they, they can be very hard to play in Omaha because they're often behind. And they're just, unlike in Hold'em, they're just not very good by themselves. They don't win very often unless they flop a set. And even then they don't win. And even when they do win, sometimes they flop a set, and sometimes they will, uh, you'll chop the pot anyway with someone with a low. So 
I'm thinking, okay, do I want to put in about 20% of my remaining stack? A little bit less than 20%, but I, do I want to put in another 10K out of my 55K to see this flop and then maybe get stuck in in a spot that I don't know what to do? It's not always obvious when you have queens in Omaha whether they are good on the flop, unless you flop very big. In a cash game, it's a different story, but, but here you know, the, the chips are very precious. But on the other hand, I, I had three ways to win. I had this possibility of flopping a set and it holding up, or maybe making a full house even. Uh, I had the possibility of, of making the nut flush if I made hearts, and I also had the ace four that could make uh, a low. So I thought for a little bit and said, no, I'm not throwing away 20% of my stack on this and then having it tough to play on the flop and having to bleed more chips away. So I said, forget it and tossed it. Well, the flop came queen, deuce, three. About the best flop possible. (laughs) So it had top set and the best low draw. So even if a low hit, I'd win that too. Not only that, there was action back and forth, and not only that, when the hand was done, I would have won the entire thing. It would have been a monster pot, and I would have been sitting very pretty. But I did not call it, so I was still short-stacked. And and that was the theme for the remainder of the tournament. Whenever I chose to play something marginal, I would lose. And whenever I chose not to play something marginal, I would have won. So that was the end of me. The, the hand I busted on wasn't important. It was pretty obvious I had to go in with that hand, but I was very short by that point. So they, they paid 12 spots. I was at 19th. So again, I spent the entire day. These 08 tournaments are long because they're split pot tournaments, so it's a lot slower to bust people. So the entire day I spent on this and walked away empty-handed, just like back in November. What's interesting is I, I've, I've been making it very deep in these 08 tournaments. If you think about it, in last year, the World Series, the very first event I played was 08, and I made 59th out of like 1,100-something people, cashed in that. The PL08, I played that, cashed that. The Mixed Omaha, which is 08, PL08, and Big O, I didn't cash, but I made it deep, and you know, I fired two bullets, but both times I lost huge pots where I was way ahead. All in. And that's how I busted both times. So had I not taken those bad beats on both bullets, I would have cashed in that too, probably. And then I, I was the bubble boy. I made 10th out of 91 in uh, the bike, and somehow that wasn't a cash. And then here I was 19th out of like 95. So <laughs> it's funny how I, in these OA tournaments, I, or all these Omaha tournaments, I seem to be very competitive. And I only started really playing 08 in uh, 2016. I haven't been playing that long. Late 2016. Uh, At at my limit hold'em table, the person sitting right next to me, to my direct right, was James Woods. 
And uh, James Woods uh, is a very nice guy there in person. If you read his Twitter, he's very provocative, very aggressive, uh, very opinionated politically. Now, he's, he's conservative, so a lot of times I agree with his opinions. Not always, but a lot of times. Uh, but he doesn't try to talk this way at the table. In fact, it's the opposite. And when a friend of his came up to him, he actually made a lot of friends in poker. So when one of his poker friends came up to him, I forgot who it was, but someone came up to him and they were talking politics. They were talking very softly. And James was saying that, you know, he doesn't really want to get into this type of stuff at the table and just kind of kept it at a very hushed tone so the table wouldn't hear. Which is interesting for a guy who's just very, very public and outspoken about his conservative beliefs on Twitter. At the poker table, not only doesn't talk about this, but when he does talk about it to someone who he knows is a friendly party, he, he keeps it pretty quiet. He doesn't want to piss people off. And I thought to myself, why is that? Why, why is it at the poker table that is so important to him to not express controversial political opinions? But on Twitter, he just does it constantly. And from watching him, I think I got an answer. I believe that James Woods wants the poker community to like him. I, I believe it's important to him to be well-liked in poker. Now, he did have a, a public battle back and forth with Negreanu on Twitter, but aside from that, uh, I can tell you he's very friendly, just in general, to everybody, whether he knows who they are or not. Just, you know, average Joe player who nobody knows. He's very friendly to them. He doesn't act like he's the big star and he's the... You know, he's. He's the famous person. They're the nobody. He doesn't act that way at all. He acts like a regular guy at the table. Uh, and, and he tries not to offend people with politics. He tries not to bring it up. I, I really think that he wants most people in poker to like him. I think that's important to him. And if you think about why he plays poker, uh, he, he enjoys the game. He enjoys the challenge. And I think he enjoys the social aspect. He doesn't need the money. He's very, very wealthy, James Woods. Very wealthy. So even if he won this the, this Limit Hold'em tournament, or, or the next day he played 08, too. He wasn't at my table, but the next day he played 08. Even if he won either of these events, if he won both of these events, it would be meaningless to him. He, he has so much money, these 100-man commerce tournaments mean nothing to him financially. Uh, it reminds me a bit of Jerry Buss, the Lakers owner who's now deceased. Uh, he had more money than James Woods does, but he played tournaments like this. He became obsessed with poker. He wasn't opinionated politically, but um, he was someone who played because he enjoyed both the game and, and, and the social aspect of it. And, and I believe James Woods does that as well, except James Woods seems even more into the social aspect of it than, than Jerry Buss was. Jerry Buss seemed more into the game itself. So it's interesting that he... I mean, I actually heard him saying to his friend that he doesn't want to, like, talk about this here, referring to the table. I talked to him a bit about politics when, you know, he's, we're both conservatives, so I, there wasn't going to be any arguing. So we, we talked about the whole Jussie Smollett thing. And uh, I heard him telling his friend, by the way, that uh, he's he's pretty much done with acting. That not only, that he just doesn't want to do it anymore. That he feels you have to walk on eggshells too much that uh, it's such a hostile environment 
two conservatives, and that everybody's so uptight about uh, uh, about the demographics of the cast in each show. He was complaining about it, saying that you know no matter what, you always have to have a certain number of this and a certain number of that, or otherwise people complain. He just he's, he's sick of it. He just said to, he's just sick of the whole atmosphere. He's sick of the whole politically correct atmosphere in Hollywood, and actually does not want to work. Now he is pretty old at this point, and he has a lot of money, so he doesn't need to work. But I had wondered when he was this outspoken on Twitter if this was harming his career. But the, I guess the reason he doesn't have to worry about that is he doesn't want a career anymore. He's done. He just wants to play poker and date young women. You might wonder if I saw any hot young girls with him or anything, which I've seen before. No, I didn't see any girls with him this time. Uh you might also wonder, what is his play style like? Well, it's kind of weird. It's kind of hard to explain. Um, he isn't a fish, but I wouldn't describe him as a good player either. Um, and it's funny. His play style is kind of a mix of sometimes too aggressive, sometimes too passive. So there's times where he's he's passive enough to where you, you get there on him when you shouldn't or where he doesn't get proper value out of the hand. And then there's been other times where he just, you know, check raises you and, and, and you, you, you think, okay, I think I've lost the hand. And then it turns out he's had nothing the whole way. and was just trying to bluff. So he is a bit unpredictable, but, uh, um, from playing with him, I don't think, I mean, he's, he's had some tournament success. I, I don't think he's a winning tournament player. He has won some tournaments. I know he's, he's, gotten to final tables so um, as I said I'm not, he's not a fish but there, there's still plenty of room to improve I shall say of course we all have room to improve there's room for me to improve too but like with James Wood at the table I don't think oh wow you know I wish he wasn't here he's gonna kill me or I don't think oh wow like an, an, another good player sitting down like I I think of okay you know I'm kind of from a poker standpoint, forgetting that he's uh, famous and forgetting that uh, anything else about him. Just from a poker standpoint, I'm not unhappy to have him at the table, but I'm not like super thrilled. Like if you see a mega fish at the table, you're thrilled to have him. If you see another pro there, you wish the guy wasn't there. Uh, James Woods, is he's kind of in between. And I've played with him before. I played, but my very first hand I played in 08 at the World Series in 2018 was against him. I sat down and there was James Woods and I got dealt a good hand and he calls in the big blind and we played it out and I won. He has not done well in any tournaments that I have played in where I've seen him. He, he's never made it very deep in any of the tournaments where I've played. In fact, I've outlasted him every single time that we've played together. It hasn't been that many times, but I've like way outlasted him. But uh, I will say this for him. He's he's friendly to everybody. He's not arrogant. He is accommodating to fans. I saw at the World Series people would want to take pictures with him, and he would do it. He wouldn't say, leave me alone, or, you know, I, I can't do this, or no. He, he does it. He does it. If you want to take a picture with him, he'll do it. I, I don't ask him for things like that. I think that's uh, obnoxious. Because I, I picture myself in his shoes. 
Like, I picture if I were him, I wouldn't want just randoms go, hey, can I take a picture with you? It gets annoying. So it's not flattering because people just want to do it to show off. And yeah, you know you're famous already. You're not flattered people want a picture with you because you know you're famous. You know why they're doing it. So I, I don't bother celebrities with things like that. But I, I, I like it when, when there's a celebrity at the table if, if they just act like everybody else. If somebody observing who didn't know that person was a celebrity uh, couldn't tell that this person there's anything different about them, uh, that would be a good thing. And I can say that about James Woods. He's very pleasant to play with. And he's personable at the table. He's just a, he's a good person to have at the table just for having fun there at the poker table and having conversations and stuff like that. So overall, my opinion of him is pretty positive. He also did something nice during the L.A. fires in November. He was helping people. He was helping use his reach on Twitter to get people to help others who needed it, including even Alyssa Milano, whose horses were in danger. And he was able to get people to come over and help Alyssa Milano with her horses. And this is someone he fights with on Twitter. That's a funny thing. He and Melissa Milano are always fighting back and forth on there. And and then uh, here he is helping her get her horses to safety. And he did. Her horses were saved, thanks to him. And I looked the other day. They're they're arguing on Twitter again about politics. Uh, Will I play this again next year? Probably. What Ari said to me. He said, I hope you cash this one because he says, well, either you're going to cash this one or I'm going to, I'm going to hear it on the radio show. So I, I guess either way, there's something good happens. He says, I, I can't wait to hear you complaining about how tournaments suck. Ari, by the way, doesn't have a permanent home. I asked him that. I said, Ari, do you live anywhere permanently or are you permanently on the tournament trail? No, he's permanently on the tournament trail. Everything that he has with him when he travels is uh, what he owns at the moment. He just, he does not want a home base at the moment. And he said he's gotten so used to traveling that it feels weird if he's even in one spot for more than a week. So that is something I could never do. Even if I didn't have a family, I just couldn't do it. At some point, I just like to be back home, back to something familiar, back to somewhere where I can relax, back with uh, all of my stuff, which I, I like. I couldn't pare down my stuff to a few suitcases, and I'm not someone who's like a um, a pack rat who has just tons and tons of stuff, and I don't buy that many new things, to be honest. But still, I, I couldn't do it. I think most of you couldn't do it. But Ari enjoys it. He said eventually it's going to stop. Eventually he'll settle down somewhere. But right now, he just enjoys uh, being able to travel around and play poker. He likes just constantly being somewhere new. And and maybe that's part of the reason he likes this show. Because it's a long show and it's something good to have to listen to when you're traveling. I've had people tell me that before. That they like to have a long poker fraud alert show loaded up for when they travel. I've had people say, hey, I'm about to get on a five-hour flight. Can you get the damn thing up in the archives? So that that makes sense. 
It makes sense. I, I've had it on flights before where I'm just super bored. And I just, I just, I just want anything to do. I'll read that crappy magazine on there they give you. And, uh, you know, it was like I can't access the internet or back in the days before there was internet on flights. I, I, I know how it feels to be on a flight and just you want the time to pass. You want something to do. Okay, enough about that. Did I really spend half an hour talking about the LAP? I, I see. I don't know how these other poker shows do it, where they cover like a bunch of topics in like an hour ten. I just spent half an hour talking about the LAPC, and I, I it, to me it feels like I spent about ten minutes. I don't even know what I said for half an hour. Okay, let's let's move on. I want to talk about the situation in Atlantic City that occurred with the stolen purse. Not not a gigantic story. This is not going to break the poker world apart. But it was posted on the Real Grinders page by the victim. And I took an interest in it. Whenever... There's crime at casinos. I'm always interested in these stories. I always find those to be kind of fascinating to follow. How the casino handles it, how the victim handles it, what occurred, how the person got away with it or didn't, what their eventual consequence was. These are all interesting things to me. And I think also fit in well with the general theme of this show. At Harris Atlantic City, which is one of a few Atlantic City properties that Caesars has, they have a poker room. For those of you that don't know Atlantic City well or don't know the area well, a lot of people who play in Atlantic City are from the greater Philadelphia area. New Jersey kind of has two parts to it. There's the southern Jersey, which is associated more with Philadelphia even though Philadelphia is in Pennsylvania. And then there's Northern Jersey, which is more associated with New York City. Uh, Atlantic City is in Southern Jersey, and it's 60 miles from Philadelphia. And it's even closer to some of the suburbs of Philadelphia to the east. So you get a lot of Philadelphia people playing in Atlantic City. Well... 32-year-old Nicole Glantz, who is from Philadelphia but was in Atlantic City to play poker, was there at the table, and she turned her back for 10 seconds, she said, only to turn back around and find that her purse and the guy sitting next to her were missing. Yeah. So the second she turned her back, the guy swiped the purse and walked out. Apparently what the guy did was took the purse and walked out of Harris, went somewhere out of sight, went through the purse, found five brand new $100 bills in there. She describes them as crisp $100 bills pocketed those, went through the rest of the purse, didn't find anything he felt was worth stealing, 
but he wasn't exactly going to bring the purse back and say, oh, here you go. Here's the purse back minus your 500. He, he just tossed the purse somewhere. Now, if you've done that, first of all, it's stupid because there's cameras in there. This is the worst place to steal a purse because you're, you're right on camera. So he, he stole a purse in full view of the cameras in the poker room. But if you're going to do that, wouldn't you think the right thing to do is to leave and never come back? I mean, he got the leaving part right, but the, but he didn't get the not coming back part right. The guy decided it was a smart idea to take the new the $500 that he stole from Nicole Glantz's purse and go right back into the poker room and uh, get ready to buy in with the $500. <laughs> he walked right back in <laughs> without the purse with the five crisp $100 bills in his pocket and just thought this would be okay somehow. So she reported him to security. Well, she re- reported the purse. She had already reported it to security. And then she saw him and couldn't believe it that he was back there. So security came over, detained him, uh, made him empty his pockets. Sure enough, five crisp $100 bills in his pocket exactly looking like the ones that were in her purse. Now, she couldn't prove that, but uh, uh, they actually did make him hand over the $500 back to her. He could have said, this is my 500 and I didn't steal it from them, but he, act- he, he actually gave it back, and as far as I know, uh, there wasn't a huge objection to that because he knew he was guilty. But uh, she was still missing her purse and everything else in it. And women keep a lot of stuff in their purse. And so some things have sentimental value. Some things are just inconvenient to lose. So you credit cards, IDs, stuff like that. You don't want to have all that stuff disappear. It's not valuable for someone else to have, but it's 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 very, very frustrating to have missing. So she kept asking him, please, just return the purse to me. Tell me where it is. Where do you throw it? The guy denied, denied, denied. So they checked the cameras. And they saw, they, they got him right on camera stealing the purse. And they, they called the police. So here they have the guy on camera taking the purse and walking out with it. They couldn't see what he did with it because he was out of the property. But they have him on camera. He still will not admit that he stole the purse. And she's begging him, look, just please tell me where it is. And we'll forget about this whole thing. Well, she also made some videos berating the guy and also asking him to back, you know, to drop this whole thing. And I will play the video for you guys. You, you will only hear the audio part of it. But truthfully, there's not that much to see. He's just kind of standing there. In the first video, he's just standing there with security kind of nearby waiting to handle him further. The second video, he's in handcuffs with the police. And you'll hear him say a few things. I'll play the first video where she's describing him and has him on video planning to post it to social media to basically shame him for being a scumbag thief. Nope. No sound on this. Let me fix that. You, you, by the way, you can find all this. You go to the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum on Poker Fraudler. You can find the whole story and a picture of him and a picture of her and these videos. This is a picture, a video of the fucking douchebag that steals my purse. He's on camera stealing my purse. Police and everything are here. 
and he's stealing my purse and he can't admit it. Standing there like a piece of shit and he knows he's wrong. Can't even look me in my eyes on camera stealing my purse. Guilty motherfucker. <laughs> Guilty motherfucker. Uh, when she posted this video to Real Grinders, by the way, uh, some of the horny, desperate dudes on Real Grinders were immediately enamored with her voice. They, they loved her voice. And there are a bunch of perverts on there. They didn't say anything that bad, but the, some perverts there were commenting on her voice and how they really, really liked it. So that was the first video. You can't see her in this video, by the way. You can only hear her. She, the, the video is all on this guy. Now, this is a bit later. This, is, this second video is taken a bit later as he's standing in handcuffs. By this point, the police have come and arrested him. And he's getting kind of belligerent with the police, believe it or not. You'd think he wouldn't be in the position to be belligerent here, but he is. And uh, I'll play you that video. And eventually the police uh, walk him away. And you'll hear what he says at the end when they're walking him away. This is her begging him to please just tell her where the purse is and she'll drop the whole thing. Dude, it's so stupid. It's so stupid for me to do this. So he says, read me my rights, read me my rights. And the cop says, I'm not going to ask you anything further, so I don't have to. <laughs> Which is funny. The cop's like, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to read you your rights because I'm not questioning you. And he's okay, then I'm done talking. That's what this guy says. We can By the way, the, the music in the background is at Harris. Avoid all of this if you just give me back my stuff. I'll drop everything. I won't post anything on Facebook. I promise you. You have my word. I, I like literally I am Nicole Glance. I, I am a woman of my word. I've been in this community for fourteen years. If you give me back my stuff, I swear to God I'll turn my head. Please. Please. It's all of my stuff. My mom has handwritten notes. Please. 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 Now, the guy says nothing. He just he, he didn't respond to any of that. And at this point, the cop is leading him away. So they're about to walk away down the hall with him in handcuffs. But then listen to what he says as he walks down the hall and kind of turns back and, and faces the poker room. Oh, you, you, you want to come with me? Matt, are you going to bag my chip? Bag his chips. Fuck you. <laughs> hey, you got to bag my chips? Hey, you know, I, I just stole a purse from this woman here, but and I'm getting arrested. But don't forget to bag my chips. Don't forget my chips. Don't screw me with my chips here. <laughs> so she's like, bag his chips. Fuck you. It was, it was such a such a Philadelphia affectation she's got there. That, that was so Philadelphia. To say, bag his chips. Fuck you. That, that is pretty ballsy to say. He's standing right there. He's ignoring the, the woman he stole from. And then as they're leading away in handcuffs, he wants his freaking chips bagged. <laughs> I'm going to bag my chips. So she posted these videos and she posted the story. What was missing from the whole thing was the guy's name. He looks like he's in his 50s. It's a white guy in his 50s with glasses, kind of a pot belly. Looks kind of short. And 
she didn't have his name, and I asked why not, and she said they didn't give it to her, which I think is a pretty big omission. I said we should call the police department and get it, because she should want to have that, even if just to sue him, just to publicize. I mean, he got arrested. This isn't like it's his her word against his. They They found it on the camera and arrested him for stealing her purse, so she has a right to know his name. But as far as I know, she still doesn't know it. Uh, she actually sent me a message on Facebook today at around noon. It's kind of weird. It's like, so, hey, 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 what's going on? <laughs> like, we're friends. And uh, I was going to invite her to come on the show. But uh, then I responded to her, and she hasn't answered me. And this has been like uh, now like 10 hours. I don't know what's going on with I, I think she hasn't even seen my message back to her. And keep in mind, again, this was her contacting me out of nowhere. I didn't, I wasn't bugging her. So let's go back to who she is. Let's go back to who she is. Nicole Glantz. Hmm. Glantz, what? Do we know someone named Glantz? Is there someone who listens to this show named Glantz? Is there a professional poker player you might know of who might have the name Glantz? Could it possibly be? Could it really possibly be someone related to Matt Glantz? I thought of this, but I thought to myself, no, you know, I've, I've known other glances in my life, and that's, it's a common enough name to where that doesn't automatically mean they're related. It's not like my last name. There's, if you find any other Wattelises in the country, they're related to me in some way, either by blood or by marriage. There's not many of them. But uh, glance, there's plenty of glances out there. So I didn't even bother to think this might be someone related to Matt. Also, she's nowhere near Matt's age. She's uh, 32. Matt, I believe, is 47. So they're like 15 years apart. So what would she be? I mean, I was thinking if she was, maybe she's a cousin. Maybe she could be a much, much younger sister. But it just didn't seem likely. I, I didn't even bother to ask about it. Well, someone registered an account on Poker Fraud Alert... Which I think they already were registered, but someone made their first post ever to mention that she claims to be Matt Glantz's sister. Yeah, this is someone who actually had an account since December 2017. Some guy named Joe on Poker Fraud Alert. But he said that she claims to be Matt Glantz's sister. I hadn't really observed much of her. She she was in the Real Grinders group, but I hadn't really seen much from her that made me take note that's no offense to her i just there's tens of thousands of people in that group so i didn't really pay attention to her but uh, i i hadn't remembered matt glance's sister being there i didn't even know he had a sister that played poker so i figured okay well i'll ask i'll ask matt glance he listens to the show i i talk to him sometimes i will ask him i've got a good relationship with him i'll ask him so i asked him and Matt Glantz confirmed that indeed Nicole Glantz, the victim of this purse theft, is indeed his half-sister. Yeah. That is Matt Glantz's half-sister you heard in that video. She's the one who had her purse stolen. Now, how come we haven't heard? How come we have not heard about Matt Glantz's half-sister being a poker player? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be something that you think we would have heard by now? That Matt Glantz has a sister who's a poker player. And sure enough, if you look at her Facebook, it says she's a professional poker player. So how do we not know this? 
How, how is this something I'd ever heard of before? So I asked Matt that, and he said that uh, it is his half-sister, but it's his half-sister on his father's side, hence the name Glance that they both have, and that uh, Matt's dad has not really been in his life for quite some time. So for that reason, the other children his father had later, such as Nicole, uh, he never really got to know. And that's understandable. And by the way, I'm not giving away Matt's private business. I, I asked him, can I reveal these details on the forum and on radio? Because I, I didn't want to say these type of things in public that he told me privately unless it was okay. He said, that's fine. So he gave me permission to give these details. And I, I told him, yeah, I understand. In fact, I had a friend when I was a teenager. I had a friend who had a brother that was 35, like about like 18 years older than he was. And this was a full brother. He, you know, Both parents were the same. But he told me that he doesn't know the brother just because of the huge age difference. He said he's just, you know, the guy was already going to college when he was born or just about to start college. And he just, he sees him come around every so often, but he's, uh, he's an adult. He's got his own life. And, uh, you know, he sees the guy every so often. It's like a stranger to him. And it makes sense. So Matt is uh, like 15 years older than Nicole, and they didn't grow up in the same house, and the father was no longer part of the family by that point in Matt's side. So, yeah, it makes sense that uh, any further kids he had that Matt never really got to know very well. So uh, I asked Matt, how is it then that you're both in poker? Is that just a huge coincidence? He said he didn't really know, but... uh, Maybe it's hereditary. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe there's something uh, something that came from his father's side that made uh, made him want to play poker and made his sister want to play poker. So uh, he's met her, but he just doesn't know her that well. And uh, But she is indeed his, his half-sister. She filled up a police report over this matter. It's actually a complaint form. Atlantic City Police Department complaint form. Now, the complaint form, she she posted it, and the only thing she blacked out was her address and her phone number. But she listed everything else. The complaint form received some criticism on Real Grinders. First of all, she put the date was 2-2020, meaning this occurred on February 20th, 2020? Either she time-traveled or she wrote the wrong date. It makes more sense to go the other way, to write 2-2018. Near the beginning of the year, people make that mistake all the time where they write the previous year when they write the date. But it's not very common someone will write the upcoming year, especially in February when we're nowhere near that year yet. I think she made the mistake because there's already a 20 she was writing. You know, 220, it's easy to write 20 again after that. Because you're thinking of the 20 in your head. Like, what day is it? 20th, 20th? Oh, yeah, 220? Okay, 20. She just, you, you can see how it happened. I bet if it was February 18th, she wouldn't have made that mistake. Like, she wouldn't have put 21820. I bet it was because it was 220, she put 20 after that. Uh, she actually wrote it in two places, though. 22020 20 on the top and bottom, she wrote in the date, the places to write the dates. Uh, she wrote her name was 
Nicole Rambo Glantz. Rambo? Rambo? <laughs> Is it possible? Could her middle name really be Rambo? Uh... People were asking that on Real Grinders, and she wasn't asking. But th- this is the complaint form that she supposedly submitted to the Atlantic City Police Department. Yeah, is it possible? Could she really be Rambo? Is that possible? John Rambo, a drifter. Just passing through their town. Nicole Rambo, a poker player, just passing through Atlantic City. Morning! Headed north or south? Good morning! Is your purse headed north or south? North. Now jump in. I'll make sure you're heading the right direction. You got some place I can eat around here? There's a diner about 30 miles up the highway. Is there any law against me getting something here? Yeah, me. I want you to book this gentleman for vagrancy, resisting arrest, carrying a concealed weapon. They knew he was innocent. Starting to dislike you. Lot. And they didn't give a damn. That's okay, Warren. Don't worry about the soap. He's tough. Just save him. Drag. Don't move. This is one of many uh, corrupt police movies. Corrupt small town police treating outsider unfairly movies, and those those tend to work pretty well because it, it's very very easy to hate the villains in those type of movies because you picture yourself in that spot, you picture yourself in a city you're not familiar with, and the police abuse you and accuse you of crimes you didn't commit and uh, beat you or whatever. It's very easy to picture yourself in that spot. And seeing the the brutal unfairness and just hate those villains. So, anyway, is her middle name really Rambo? I don't think so because she posts on Facebook not as Nicole Glantz but as Nicole Danielle. So I'm assuming her middle name is Danielle, which makes me wonder why is she putting Rambo down on the complaint form as her middle name? Like, is she making a joke? I don't get it. I don't get why you would. That's not the right place to make the joke. A complaint form. Unless this is really not the one she submitted. Maybe this is a... She rewrote it. And then took a picture of it. So she put Nicole Rambo Glantz. She actually put her date of birth of 10586. And again, I'm not giving away private information. She actually made this public. That's how I know she's 32. It says, defendant information. All she wrote was a fellow poker player, early 50s man. Which is all she knows. Uh, offense information... Uh, where did the incident happen? Harris Poker Room entrance. Where, what did the person do? He stole my coach wristlet with, I guess a wristlet is a purse, uh, with $500 bills and change with all of my cards, ID, access card, debit card, savings card, uh, this is weird, savings card with Peter Domenico name. I don't know what that means. Uh, and then she put, quote, he. <laughs> she puts he in quotes as if, uh, yeah, maybe maybe it's a, a woman. I don't know. Quote, he is un- unknown glasses, unknown, comma, glasses, comma, Jewish. Where did you get the Jewish part? Uh, flyer sweatshirt, black hooded, weak mommy issues, 
probably never had a girlfriend. This is actually in the complaint form. <laughs> uh, bad poker player obviously has no morals and never lived up to his parents' expectations. If you need more, let me know. <laughs> and, and then she signed it and, and dated it again to 2020. Very odd complaint form, I will say. Uh, so people uh, some people criticized how she was insulting the guy near the end and putting things like he has no morals, never lived up to his parents' expectations, uh, weak, whatever. Like uh, People were criticizing that. They were criticizing the Rambo thing. Were asking, more, more asking, is that really your middle name? And then people were criticizing the 22020 thing. So the, the data I understand, the data I, I can see just because of the trauma of getting your purse stolen and knowing your ID's gone and just knowing it's floating out there somewhere, the guy tossed it and you'll never find it. So I can understand that. And I can even understand the insults just because she's pissed. Uh, probably not the right place to write them. You should write them online later. You shouldn't write them on a form to the police department. But the police department's not going to do anything with that. They're just going to, you know, just going to chuckle at it and that's that. They're not, it's not going to really hurt your report. Uh, I don't understand the Rambo thing, though, unless that really is her middle name. And I don't know where the Danielle thing comes from. But why put a fake middle name like Rambo? <laughs> That's very weird. That's why I wanted her on here tonight to ask these questions. But that's supposedly the form she submitted. Again, no proof that's the one she submitted. Maybe she's just trolling us with that form. Though obviously this really happened. There's We can see on video the guy being led away in cuffs and her berating him. Uh, she still doesn't know the guy's name. I posted a picture of him. If you know who it is, go go on Poker Fraud Alert. There's a thread on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum called Idiot Poker Player Swipes Purse in Full View of Harris Atlantic City. If you know who it is, uh, please state who it is. Let's out this guy. Clearly, he's guilty. They they let him away in handcuffs. They saw it on camera. So go ahead and name him. And if, if for whatever reason he's falsely accused, he's welcome to register an account here and defend himself. I doubt he ever will. But I, I think people like that should be exposed. I think people like that, uh, everyone should know about them. So when you see this guy, you go, oh, that's the purse, the purse thief. I'll watch out around him. Maybe even complain to the person who's uh, the manager of the poker room that this is a purse thief who got in trouble at Harris Atlantic City for stealing. This is also a cautionary tale to you guys that you should always keep things that are valuable on you at all times. Don't even walk away or turn your back for 10 seconds or they can disappear. This includes cell phones, this includes purses, this includes backpacks with anything valuable in them. You don't want to leave anything that you would be very upset if it were stolen, aside from your chips, which you can't remove from the table until you quit the game. But aside from that, everything else you should keep on you at all times. For example, when I bring a backpack to play poker, as I do sometimes... I will always leave with a backpack. When I go on a break, I take the backpack. When I go to the bathroom, I take the backpack. Why? Because I want to have everything with me. I do not want to leave it there and just believe it won't be stolen. 
you may think, well, who's going to steal it? It's right in front of the dealer, right in front of other players. Well, people just walk up and take things and walk off, and by the time people react, it's too late. Uh, why don't they do that with chips? Because chips you have to cash out. And also, if you reach on a table and just grab someone's chips, that's more blatant, that's more obvious that you're stealing. So that's, that's just that gets everyone's attention more easily. Uh, if you just walk over and kind of grab a backpack and walk away, people may not even notice. If you grab a person and walk away, people they may not notice until it's too late. So always take stuff with you, even if it's kind of a pain. Don't ever trust that your stuff won't be taken, even for a very short period of time. And I've thought of it before. I think, oh, I don't feel like walking around with this backpack for 15 minutes on break. But I do. I walk around with a backpack for 15 minutes on break because I do not want it stolen. Unless I have just nothing in there I care about. Sometimes I'll just have a, a few waters and, and uh, a little snack in there. Well, you know, not that I want my backpack stolen, but then I'll leave it there because I figure, well, what's the worst that's going to happen if it gets stolen? The backpack itself would be annoying to lose, but other than that, uh, nothing of real value is, is in there. But any time I have anything in there that I don't want stolen, I take it with me. So be careful. Be careful in poker rooms. You'd be surprised how little is done for you once it happens. You, you think, oh, okay, the, the poker room has to protect you. They should give you back whatever gets stolen. They, they don't. They don't. And you'll only get limited cooperation as far as tracking down that person and bringing them to justice. They, w- they will ban the person, but you know, what does that do you, especially if the person doesn't come back or if you don't know when they'll come back? I assume this guy cannot come back to any Caesar's properties. I have to assume he's going to be banned. If he's not, then it's a big miscarriage of justice on that front. But I want to know who it is. So take a look at the picture on the thread. Idiot poker player swipes purse in full view of Harris Atlantic City. And identify the guy. Maybe we can get a little bit of justice for Matt Glantz's half-sister. <laughs> and, and in that same thread, you can see what she looks like. You can see the the girl that goes with the voice. I grabbed two pictures of her from her Facebook. One is a picture of her sitting with a bunch of chips at a poker table, and the second picture is not a poker picture. It's a picture of her sitting on a pool table, uh, holding one of the pool balls. But she's sitting there with like capri pants and. It looks like she's holding like a hat on the side of her head. It's kind of a weird picture, but you can see uh, you can see her that way. She looks like a very small girl. She looks like she weighs maybe like a hundred pounds, if that. Looks kind of short. So you you can see Nicole Glantz as well. I, whenever I post uh, stories about people, male or female, uh, I will post as many pictures as I can find that I think are relevant. Of all the people involved, the the villain and the victim and whoever else. Like I go, here's this person, here's that person, because I like to create uh, a narrative in your mind that you can follow and where you can picture the whole thing happening. So it's it's helpful to have pictures of everybody involved. Though I will admit that when it involves a female, that people are more interested to see what she looks like. But really, in this whole thing, the the person's looks that are more important in this story are the guys because we want to identify him. What a scumbag, though, just stealing a purse and walking out and tossing it and, and being so stupid to, to steal a purse in full view of 
Harris cameras and to come back and try to play poker again? How stupid do you have to be? How stupid do you have to be to come back in with the money you stole and then try to play poker again? You know you're on camera. You know the girl's going to notice her purse is gone. I, I think the guy thought he was so th- slick that she wouldn't realize it was him. I think he, he believed that she'd just go, what? Where's my purse? Where'd it go? Who stole it? Oh, well, I guess there's no way I'll find out. But doesn't he think that she will go to security and they will pull the footage and see it was him? It's not hard. What a freaking moron. What a freaking moron. I'm looking forward to finding out who this guy is. It's not anyone big in poker, but I'm looking forward to finding out who he is. It's so funny about the bagging his ships, too. Uh, Someone posted on the forum, it would be funny if when she was saying she'll drop the whole thing if he just says where her purse is. And then he tells her, and then she's like, "You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna press the charges anyway." That'd be very fitting. He deserved that too, if that were the case. She could just bluff him and say she's gonna drop the whole thing, and then not bluff it, and, and then not drop it. So I believe she would have dropped. It. I believe she would have kept her word. I believe she just wanted the purse so bad at that point she was willing to just like not get this guy in trouble. If she could just undo all this. I think she was just very, very upset that all these things were gone. Understandably. I wonder whose sister is next going to have an issue in poker. I wonder how many how many of you out there have a sister I don't know about in poker? I wonder whose sister I will find out about next. Something else some of you may or may not know. I think I've mentioned it on the show before. But the very first girl I had sex with, the girl who took my virginity 30 years ago, is in poker. Have I played with her? No. Have I seen her? No. I've seen her on Facebook. She's not a Facebook friend of mine. I looked her up just to see what she looks like and see what she's up to these days. I, I didn't make contact. But she is in poker. I don't know how often she plays, but she has some tournament results and some fairly recent tournament results. So she's she's playing. Lower limits than I typically play, but, you know, who knows? One of these days, maybe she'll satellite into something that I'm playing. And then she'll be at my table. That will be weird. I wonder if she knows of me in poker. Because she's not a known person in poker at all. But I wonder if she knows of me. I wonder what she thinks of that. I'm just about sure she remembers me. But unless she's seen a recent picture of me, she probably would not recognize me just seeing me in the poker room. It's been 30 years, so we both look different, obviously. But yeah, sometimes people end up in poker that you don't expect. Sometimes it's Matt Glantz's sister. Sometimes it's the girl who took my virginity. All right. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. Whoever was calling like a madman from the 650, they they stopped. As soon as I'm able to take calls, they don't want to call anymore. That's always how it works here. People bother me with phone calls when I can't take them. And then when I can take them, nobody calls. If you want to text, you can text at 775-372-8355, our main phone number. 
From the 505, the thief is just a mega degenerate who comes back to the scene. That's probably true. Uh, from the 507, referring to that same incident, the guy should be on that show, America's Stupidest Criminals. Yeah, <laughs> he probably should. I couldn't believe the guy returned. Um, uh-oh, someone's saying that Belly Buster donated $100 to the tournament, but I already announced the prize pool. If he did that, I'll have to hold it on until next week. For the 916, this just came in. When that girl took your virginity, did the whole encounter last 15 seconds? Uh, no, it, it didn't. It it no it didn't I I lasted longer than fifteen seconds, uh, but, but part of the reason it was it wasn't very comfortable. It was in the back of a car, the back of a small car, and I remember thinking to myself, "This isn't the ideal spot to lose my virginity," and I was tall. I was a lot thinner than I am now, but I was tall. Uh, but it, it was hard to fit back there, and I thought, "This is this is." Very inconvenient, but do I want to say no? Do I want to say, no, we shouldn't do this. Let's wait for a better time and place. And I, I decided, no, I'm not going to say that. Because I, I wanted it to happen. So what, what was I going to do? She was willing to do it in the back of the car, so I did it in the back of the car. That is uh, where it happened. Okay, let's... Uh, Move on to the next topic here. See, we're we're moving along, kind of. The Supreme Court has come down with a ruling which has to do with civil forfeiture. What is civil forfeiture? I've talked about it before on this show. It's it's a very very obnoxious legal premise, which started off with. Uh, noble intentions. It started off with intentions to help fight crime and ended up becoming abused very quickly to where the main utilization of it was to steal. And I'm not even kidding. That's really what it's being used for. Legalized stealing. So civil forfeiture, I believe it started in 1984. It was in the midst of the drug war in the 80s, the war on drugs. And the concept behind it was that law enforcement should have a way to confiscate ill-gotten gains from drug dealers even if they haven't actually seen the drug deals take place. If a known drug dealer who has no other verifiable means of income is walking around with millions of dollars in cash and driving super expensive cars and living in super expensive homes and and, and if, if asked to explain it, the guy could never explain where the money came from. That this should be able to be seized. Basically, you can seize property and cash if it is suspected of being obtained through criminal means. And then the suspected criminal would then have to prove that he obtained this legally. And this was supposed to only be aimed at drug dealers and organized crime. It wasn't supposed to be aimed at the average citizen. So at first, it seemed like it might be a good idea. This way, these drug dealers who are so careful about who they deal with and who's watching, now they can have their assets just taken from them if it's very clear to authorities how they're getting it. 
and then they have the burden of proof is on them to show how they really made the money. Well, this was very quickly perverted to become a means of legalized stealing from average citizens. What happened was small town and small county police departments and governments realized that they could make a lot of money this way by targeting average citizens, taking their stuff, and then saying, okay, you want it back? Prove it. Don't just tell us, but you actually have to, you'll have to hire an attorney. You'll have to, you, if you can fight us in court and get it back, good luck. Go ahead and do it. But otherwise, we're keeping your stuff. And this was a real revenue stream for certain small town, small county police departments and small county and city governments. So this wasn't happening in Los Angeles or Boston or something like that, but this would happen in small towns that you would drive through. And what they would do is they would target out-of-state cars, especially ones where they thought the person might have cash on them. They sometimes strategically placed themselves on routes on the way back from casinos where they knew people would be carrying cash. They'd pull them over. They'd come up with a false pretense to search the car. They'd claim they'd have a dog with them. They'd claim the dog sniffed drugs, which they'd just make up. It wasn't even true. They would search the car. They would find the cash. And they'd say, okay, we're keeping it because we believe this cash was obtained illegally. The person would say, no, no, no. I just won it from the casino. You can check with them. Call them right now. You'll see I just won an $8,000 jackpot. Nope, they wouldn't do that. They would take it. They'd say, take us to court if you want the money back. And often the amount they would take would be too low to be able to justify the legal expenditure to get it back. Sometimes it would cost tens of thousands of dollars to hire an attorney to go through the whole process to get it back. So if you lost 8000 bucks and it's cost 30000 to get it back, people are not going to do it. So in other cases, they would scare people into signing documents that they're giving up the property or the money seized in exchange for no charges being pressed against them, which is really nasty. They'd be told, we think you got this money from a drug deal, and we're going to be investigating further. Uh, We're going to hold you here while we are investigating this, and if we have determined you got this money from a drug dealing, then we are going to uh, charge you, and you can spend up to 15 years in prison. So, of course, the person panics, and they're at this unfamiliar place. And uh, they're told, oh, or, or, or you can just give this money up, sign documents that you are relinquishing it to the, to the government here, and we'll drop everything. That happened too. More often it was just they'd take it and say, you want it back, sue us. That was the most common way they would do it. Usually with some sort of trumped up search that was done through... Uh, uh, fake suspicions or, or, or dogs that are trained to act as if they've found drugs in the vehicle or sniff drugs in the vehicle. Very, very, very dirty. It really was legalized stealing. This was not what civil forfeiture was meant for. Civil forfeiture was meant to go after big-time drug dealers or organized crime figures that amassed a lot of wealth through criminal activity, not people driving down the highway with $5,000 in their car. 
Now, there, there would have been an easy way to fix this. One easy way to mostly fix this would be to make a very high minimum of what they can seize. I didn't say high maximum, I said high minimum. So it would have to be something like they can only do such a seizure if they're seizing uh, you know, $250,000 or more, or something worth 250000 or more. Something like that, 500000 or more. This would prevent them pulling over random motorists and victimizing them that way because nobody has that type of money in their car. Nobody's car itself is worth that. So this would stop the targeting of random people, and then those they do target would definitely have the money to fight it if they were innocent and, and unfairly targeted. So that would have put an end to a lot of it uh, just from doing that. But I honestly just think the whole thing was flawed in the first place. I understand the concept behind it. I don't feel bad for the drug dealers who get their stuff taken or the organized crime figures who get their stuff taken. Even if you can't prove a crime against them, if there's a, I don't feel bad for them if, the, if this really was being used honestly and they really were only targeting clear criminals and taking their stuff, great. But the problem is, when it comes to the law, everything has to be very, very specific and everything has to be very, very carefully constructed to where it is not abused or not potentially abused. And unfortunately here, because it just allows the seizure of people's stuff without proving any crime they committed and just say you suspect a crime, then uh, this is very, very open to abuse, especially by small towns, small counties, small police departments that need funding badly. So they steal to get it. And it's terrible. Now, you may wonder, which political party supports something like this? Uh, are the Democrats behind it? No. Are the Republicans behind it? No. Well, then, why is this happening? If both major parties don't like civil forfeiture, which they don't, the truth is that most people in both major parties, when I say people, I mean both the average citizens and also the politicians, most of them are against civil forfeiture in both major parties. So why hasn't it stopped yet? It, it just hasn't. There just has not been enough attention to it. It's not a big enough issue. There hasn't been enough attention to it, and it, it just hasn't been stopped. There there have been a few developments in recent years. Eric Holder, who I feel was a horrible attorney general, did one good thing and ended something called equitable sharing. Equitable sharing was really, really dirty. See, some states realized what was going on here. And some states made it very, very tough to pull these little scams to seize property like that. Uh, some states did not at all. Some states left it very easy. But other states made it very, very difficult. So when these states would do it, and would when it do it meaning when they would make it more difficult to do and pass laws that would require either criminal conviction or or, or you know, clear and convincing evidence some kind of high standard not just oh we suspect you of a crime we're taking this stuff but you have to, they'd have to have clear and convincing evidence or even more maybe a conviction 
It varied from state to state. But the states that made a much tougher standard for this, the small town police departments and county governments said, crap, what are we going to do now? This is killing our income. So they came up with an idea. What about federal law? What if we got the federal government in on these seizures? So equitable sharing was a program where if the federal government assisted with seizures, then they would get half the proceeds and the local law enforcement department would get half the proceeds. Why was this done? Because if federal authorities would get involved, then it would overrule any kind of state law protecting against it. So equitable sharing was being done in states like Nevada, which had a lot of strong protections against abuse of civil forfeiture. So once they got federal authorities involved, then Nevada's protections were out the window, as were other states where this was being done. So Eric Holder put an end to this, but then it was put right back. Eric Holder ended it in March 2015. Unfortunately, Jeff Sessions put it back in June of 2018. So equitable sharing has returned, unfortunately. But why are we talking about this now? Well, the Supreme Court heard a case having to do with civil forfeiture. The case had nothing to do with poker or gambling, but you might already guess from what I was saying before why this affects gamblers like us, and that is police like to position themselves near casinos, or at least on the way that people typically drive from to or from casinos, and pull those cars over and take the money. So this affects gamblers. This, this has affected gamblers. I've told stories before on this show of gamblers who have had their money just taken from them unfairly by police who pulled them over, who targeted them specifically to steal their money through civil forfeiture uh, seizures. And th- this is not an exaggeration. This is not fake news. This has been covered by many, many reputable news outlets that this is really occurring. There really is legalized theft occurring through civil forfeiture. It's really terrible. It's unbelievable this is happening still in the year 2019, but it is. So anyway, back to the Supreme Court matter. Tyson Timms was fighting civil forfeiture, which happened against him, except unlike these people who are targeted on the road who are innocent, Tyson Timms actually was not innocent. Tyson Timms was a small-time drug dealer. He was actually a drug addict who would deal a little bit on the side to get his, to give him money so he could continue buying heroin. He was a heroin addict who also sold heroin on the side in small amounts to buy his next heroin fix. So this was not some big-time drug kingpin. This was just an addict trying to find a way to get more drugs. I'm not saying that he didn't deserve some, some kind of uh, criminal penalty for this, but uh, this is what happened. Tyson Timms was caught trying to sell $225 worth of heroin to undercover officers. 
When he was caught, they searched his vehicle, which is a $42,000 Land Rover, and uh, found drugs in there, and they impounded the vehicle. He did plead guilty. You know, they had him dead to rights. He, he did it. He knew he did it. He admitted he did it. There's no question that Tyson Timms was guilty of attempting to sell heroin to undercover officers. Very little heroin, $225 worth, but still, he was trying to sell heroin to undercover officers. However, the maximum possible fine for doing this, for selling that amount of drugs, was $10,000. That's the maximum fine. Rarely is someone hit with a maximum fine. But even in the case that he hit with a maximum fine, the most it could be is $10,000. So Tyson Timms questioned why, if the maximum fine is $10,000, does the government have a right to keep his $42,000 Land Rover? It's a good question. That is a good question. So, the Indiana Supreme Court, this occurred in Indiana, allowed the state to proceed with that forfeiture. But this got taken all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they agreed to hear it. And the Supreme Court, this is just recently, this is just this past week, decided 9-0 to zero, unanimously. How often do you see that? Nine, nine to zero in the Supreme Court. <laughs> so this shows you the, the unification, one of the rare unifications that we see these days politically between both parties. It's a Republican majority Supreme Court. But there are Democrats on the court. Nine to zero. Unanimous. It was ruled in Tyson Tim's favor that this could not be done. And they cited the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The Eighth Amendment reads, Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. So, the Supreme Court ruled that this was in violation of the Eighth Amendment, because this was considered excessive fines. They were basically fining him a Land Rover worth $42,000 for something that is supposed to have a maximum penalty of 10000 And the Supreme Court also stated that they have a right to rule on this because uh, of the Bill of Rights that it does apply to the states. The 14th Amendment uh, uh, due process clause uh, allows the the Supreme Court to apply this to the states. That basically the protection from excessive fines is a constitutional protection. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, just back from yet another illness, it's amazing she's still alive, She said, the protection against excessive fines has been a constant shield throughout Anglo-American history. Exorbitant tolls undermine our constitutional liberties. Clarence Thomas said the excessive fines clause applies to the states through a different provision of the 14th Amendment, the Privileges and Immunities Clause. 
Neil Gorsuch said that there can be no serious doubt that the Eighth Amendment applies to the states. The American Bar Association submitted a brief in support of Tyson Timms. They said, we urge the court to consider the fundamental importance of the right to equal justice without regard to economic status and the essential role of excessive fines clause in preserving that right. So pretty much everybody agrees. <laughs> Everyone agrees that this, this is outrageous. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter that, that uh, Tyson Timms is getting back his Land Rover? Well, this is a blow to police departments and small governments that are using civil forfeiture as a form of income in that they can no longer keep things that they seize that are uh, greatly exceeding the value of what could normally be collected through fines in laws and the books. So they, they can't just say, uh, we think you did such and such, we're keeping all the money we found in your car, you have $10,000, whatever, uh, over some minor crime that, they're, that they, they are accusing you of. But basically, this is what this has done is it has established that civil forfeiture is equivalent to a fine. And that wasn't the case before. Before it was being seen that uh, this was being taken as uh, something that was assumed to be acquired or used to commit a crime. Either to commit a crime or as a result of committing a crime, that you got it. But now these forfeitures are being equated to an actual fine. And if the Supreme Court has ruled that this is unconstitutional to fine people excessive amounts through forfeiture, then that starts to ruin the whole process of civil forfeiture and it ruins the, it ruins the legality of it to a large degree. I actually wish we had Eric Benzamokin on for this. I didn't think of that. I, I've, got, I've got to remember this. Like Sometimes I remember, sometimes I don't. I've, I've got to think about the fact that whenever we have anything that has to do with law, we should have him on here. So, this could be starting to come to an end. Hopefully this is just one of several blows that will be coming to civil forfeiture. And hopefully the whole thing will just be done away with. It, it's far outlived its usefulness. The intended purpose has been perverted so badly that it's now become legalized stealing. And whatever good that it may have brought at one point, or whatever potential good it may have brought, has been ruined. And now it's turned into something very evil. And the fact that both political parties overwhelmingly hate it, the fact that Americans as a whole overwhelmingly hate it, 
It's to show that this is something that's very, very wrong. This is one of the few issues these days where everyone can agree politically. Everyone can get together on this one. And unfortunately, it disproportionately affects gamblers because gamblers frequently travel with a lot of cash. And it is so frustrating when you're already gambling for a living, when you can already lose the money through what you do for a living. Or if you're not gambling for a living. through you, know, you can always lose gambling. Whether you're doing it professionally or recreationally, you can always lose gambling. And that's just the luck of what happens. That's, that's part of being a gambler. But to have money that you've won or that you're taking to go use to try to win and have it just stolen from you by a government that has perverted a law from the 1980s to make it legal to steal from you, that's got to be beyond frustrating. You're actually being stolen from by a government. It's, it's not some thug breaking into your car and stealing the money out of there. It's not a carjacker stealing it from you. It's not organized crime taking it from you. It's the freaking government. It's unbelievable. When I first heard about this, I thought, no, it couldn't be what they're saying. No, no, someone's just exaggerating. No, it's not an exaggeration. Go read about it. Google the articles about civil forfeiture. Read all about it. It's exactly as bad as I'm saying. It's so bad that I'm still shocked that to this day it exists. This is something which... I would think about you'd hear about it happening 40 years ago that they did away with a long time ago. Not something that could be happening in 2019, but it is. Seven seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. If you don't want to call, you can text if you're of the shy type. The 916, they texted that uh, the Supreme Court ruling also helps firearm owners. Yeah, that's true too. If you uh, have guns, it can prevent those from being seized as well. A lot, a lot of communities are happy about this. I know the firearm community is happy about it. I know the gambling community is happy about it. Being watched closely by many communities which are, are victimized by some of these uh, corrupt governments, corrupt small governments. And corrupt small governments have been a problem for many decades because they often try to find their funding through passing motorists. And, of course, we all know about the speed traps that are set up with unreasonably low speed limits where they'll pull you over for going one mile per hour over and write you an expensive ticket. But... Civil forfeiture is another way that they can steal from you that's a lot more lucrative than writing tickets. I saw an episode of the Rockford Files, of course from the 70s when, when the show ran, where Rockford ended up in a small town where they framed him for a crime and then wanted him to pay a gigantic fine to get out of it and avoid massive jail time. And it was a big scam that they did to passing motorists in the area. It's actually a pretty good episode. And while that was fiction, there's a reason that plot was written. 
And that's because things like that were going on. And things like that are still going on. We're talking about something more than 40 years ago that was on TV depicting this sort of thing. So it's not even like that police departments are doing it, but they're technically not supposed to be. This is legal. This is legal to just pull people over and take their money and say, okay, we suspect you of a crime. Sue us to get it back. It's actually legal to do that in certain states and in any state if the federal government gets involved. And shame on Sessions for bringing that back. I don't know what he was thinking. That's not even normally a Republican position. Okay, we're going to move on to the next topic here. Well, this is the time of show I lose my agenda. I knew it would happen. Once a show, at least, I lose my agenda. Oh, Vanessa Russo update. Okay. Vanessa Russo update. We follow Vanessa Russo here. Former poker player. Former heterosexual. Current lesbian. Former survivor contestant. After poker. Former slash maybe current DJ. Former wife of Chad Brown, who has died of cancer, who she left while he was dying of cancer, and then hooked up with a girl who she's still with. She went back to Florida, where she's from, to visit her parents and went crazy and kept calling the police from a 7-Eleven that someone's trying to kill her parents, and she was just nuts. And she was tweeting out from the 7-Eleven that she needed help. And uh, then they tried to cover up the whole thing afterwards because there was a mental breakdown of some sort. That happened, I think, about a year ago. Vanessa Russo has been through a lot and done many things. Some good, some bad. She had mentioned most recently that she was going to law school. Or going not back to that she was becoming a. I think she had gone to law school previously, but uh, didn't take the bar. Something where she was pretty close to being a lawyer, but wasn't quite one yet. This is before poker. So she decided to return to this. Uh, her, her first attempt after Survivor, after she was on Survivor, and after it seemed like her career in media was dying, because there's only so far you can stretch all this. I mean, she she really stretched it pretty far. She went from being a female poker player to extending that into various uh, media opportunities. She was a GoDaddy girl somehow. In those commercials, she was uh, on Survivor. I I don't know how she even managed to do all this uh, because to be honest, like she wasn't even all that attractive, at least not in my opinion. She wasn't like really ugly, but she wasn't like, it's not like she was like some really hot chick in poker. There's like a lot of chicks in poker who are way hotter than she ever was. And that's the truth. But but somehow she marketed herself as the hot chicken poker, and it worked. Like, she just kind of just said, hey, this is what I am, and 
she she made the opportunities roll in. I mean, good for her with that. She did a good did a good job with that one. But that dried up. Then she and her girlfriend, or I think she, I think they're married now. Whatever, I think it's her wife. Whatever it is, they they, they try to start this uh, DJing business called Nightlight, but that didn't really go anywhere. So she, I guess she's returned to the original plan before she got into poker, before she appeared on Survivor or any of that stuff. And that was to become a lawyer again. Or again, become a lawyer, which she was close to succeeding with, or close to at least succeeding in becoming one, and then derailed all that for poker. So she returned to it. And that was the last update I have... I had given you. Well, here's a tweet from Vanessa Russo on February 19th. Today was a huge day for me. My first solo hearing as a hashtag lawyer. Ah, I was so nervous. It went really well, though, so I could finally exhale. Phew. I love being a lawyer. So stoked to be on this new path. Hashtag Miami lawyer. Hashtag big day. Hashtag corporate law. Hashtag commercial law. Hashtag real estate law. Yeah. Then she posted various pictures of herself in some building, some tall building, which I don't know if it's where she did this hearing or if this is her office. I don't know. But it's a picture of her at work. And then there's also a picture of her and her wife in the car on the way. So they're still together. I have to say, I I would not want Vanessa Russo as my lawyer. And not because I don't believe that she knows the law. Not not because I don't believe that she lacks the intellectual ability to do it. But it's because she's crazy. (laughs) Because she's unstable. She's always been kind of unstable. So that's not who I'd want representing me. Someone who was just recently at a 7-Eleven calling the police that her family is uh, has been kidnapped and is in danger when none of this was actually happening. And then live tweeting that she needs the public's help to save her family when this is all in her head. Uh, that's not someone I would want as my attorney. So I wonder what people think when they Google her. You know, I've gotten requests from people over the years, including some recently, from people who they try to move on to something else in their life and they're, something they wrote on Poker Fraud Alert was embarrassing to them or something written about them was embarrassing and that they want me to take certain threads down or certain posts down. And I, I handle those on a case-by-case basis. I, I don't want to be a hard-ass and say, no, I'm leaving it here. Tough luck. I'm not deleting anything. I, I could say that, but I don't want to be a jerk. So if, if, I, 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 I think about a lot of factors when I get requests like that. Number one is, how old is the thread? Number two, how big or high profile was the thread? You know, was it something people are going to remember and want to go back to and see again? Or was it something that kind of had a few posts and nobody cared about? Uh, how many years ago was it? What was the situation? If someone did something wrong, you know, have, have they mostly acted right in their life since then? 
was it something they posted themselves that they just wish wasn't out there anymore? There's a lot of things I consider and then try to make a fair determination of what I should do at that point. And I really try to work with people. I I don't want to have Poker Fraud Alert as something that's an albatross around people's necks for the rest of their life. I, I don't want you to have to go get a job or try to get a job and then someone Googles and finds a, something on Poker Fraud Alert you wrote back in 2012 that's very embarrassing for you and they don't want to hire you. I, I don't want that to happen to you. But you know, if you scammed people... And, and there's a story about you scamming people, then uh, then I probably don't want to remove it unless it, unless it's clear that you've really changed your ways and you've you've moved on. And then sometimes I'll agree to remove it. Uh, other times I will modify something to where it doesn't appear in Google very easily. That sometimes that'll be the compromise of like I don't want to delete it, but I'll I'll remove your last name so this way people Google and you can't find you. This way people know who knew of you in poker can still find the story, but people in your outside life won't find this anymore. Like, I'll find compromises like that. Sometimes I'll say no. Sometimes I'll just leave it and say tough luck. Like, I've had scammers contact me who never made anything right and just want me to remove the story. And I say no. <laughs> I don't care if it happened five years ago. You didn't make it right. I've never gotten a request from Vanessa to remove anything. But yet when you Google her, uh, a lot of times poker fraud alert results come up that aren't very flattering. Now, she didn't scam anyone, but, but she's had a lot of weird and erratic behavior over the years. Uh, I, I didn't, I've never had any altercations with her personally. I've seen her berate fish at the table, which I think is bad, but I, I haven't had any direct altercations with her. I don't even know if Vanessa really is aware that we're even talking about her on this show or, or posting about her on Poker Fraud. I, like, I, I have a feeling she's just like kind of out of it and doesn't know. Because she's, she's made no attempt to have this taken down. Which kind of surprises me if she's trying to have a career as a lawyer. And, and the truth is, I'll, I'll be honest here, the truth is that I, I, I probably would try to work with her if, if this was hurting her law career. I don't want to have, you know, like she, as I said, she didn't scam anyone. So if if something on the site was hurting her career and she wanted to take it down or, or I could modify it in some way, yeah, it, I, I might consider it. But I've, I've never gotten such contact. Everything written is true, to my knowledge. I, I wouldn't allow things up on the site that are uh, false accusations. She's had a lot of weird things in her life. Uh, she she had some poker talent for sure, at least in tournaments. Uh, she seems like a smart girl, but uh, there's a lot of weirdness about her. There's a lot of instability with her, a lot of instability. This is just someone who just isn't totally right, in my opinion. Not totally right in the head. I don't think of bad person. I think sometimes she's selfish and narcissistic, but I don't think she's really a bad person. I just think she's kind of not right in the head. <laughs> so that's my impression of her from what I've observed. The Chad Brown thing was very weird. Um, I don't know if maybe while she was with him, she realized she was a lesbian or what, what was with that, or I don't know if she's bisexual. I don't, I don't know what the hell is the story with that, but 
if there's somebody with terminal cancer and you're with them, why divorce them at that point? Even if the marriage sucks, just let it end with the death and then move on? I've actually known people personally who've been in that spot. I've known two different people personally who were in bad marriages where their spouse was dying of terminal cancer. And in both cases, they did not get a divorce. In both cases, they just uh, let the cancer run to conclusion, and that was that. Whereas if the person was healthy, they would have divorced him. And that's really the right thing to do. Because why why burden someone with a divorce when uh, they're dying of terminal cancer? I mean, yeah, the marriage may have problems. You you may not be happy, but it's going to come to an end. Just let let it be done. Now, if it's something awful, if someone is very abusive to you or has done terrible things to you, then yeah, leave them. But just typical... Like, we don't get along anymore, we're not in love anymore, whatever it is, divorce stuff. If someone has terminal cancer, just let it end. But she didn't. She she left Chad Brown when he had terminal cancer, which is pretty bad. That's it. Nothing more. Just wanted to let you know, Vanessa Russo did her first solo hearing as a lawyer. Just wanted to report that. So some people have been waiting for this story that I teased. The super user story. Is it possible we have another super user story in 2019? In the 2000s, I was a victim of both the absolute poker and the ultimate bet super user scandals. This is where employees or owners... Actually, really, owners, not so much employees, of, of the of Absolute Poker and, and Ultimate Bet were playing against customers and could see their whole cards using tools that were written for that. They didn't even hack anything. They were using tools that were written for testing purposes that were then used for cheating purposes so you could see the whole cards of your opponents and just crush them. There's no way to win in poker against someone who can see your whole cards. So I was victimized on both sides. I appeared on 60 Minutes and CNBC discussing this whole scandal. I was one of the very first people to call it out. You can go back to the archives on 2 Plus 2 and find that. In fact, if you go look it up, you will see the very first person to refer to the people doing the whole card cheating as, quote, super users. It was me. I didn't invent the term. The term is actually a computer science term. But I was the first to apply that term to poker. The term super user had never been used in a poker sense until I used it. And this isn't like an Al Gore inventing the internet moment. You can you can go look it up. In fact, Haley hints when I when I said I I came up with that term first, she wasn't sure if she believed me. She went back and researched it, and she said, "Oh yeah, <laughs> it's true. He did. He he was the first one to ever use that term to describe poker cheating where people could see whole cards." That's why whenever I read about like a super user or the super user scandal, I always think, huh, that's my term. <laughs> that was my contribution. But one of many contributions, actually. I, I, I had a lot to do with bringing all that out to the public. 
especially the AP side. The the UB side was more done by other people. The AP side, I had a, I had a big role in that at the beginning. Well, since then, I've always been on the lookout for potential super users. Now, they wouldn't necessarily have to be employees or owners of the company. It could be hackers, too. In the case on UB and AP, these were not hackers. They were actually insiders, but it can be hackers, too, potentially. But I'm aware that there's a lot of money to be made in online poker, even today, if you can cheat and if you can gain access to people's whole cards or maybe know what's coming in the deck. Something like that would be such a huge edge, there's no way to lose, even in the short term. I've been playing on the Bovada Ignition Network for quite some time. I am a big winning player there. I've done very well overall, over many years. I've done well recently. I've cashed out a good deal of money over time, including recently. So keep in mind, this is not coming from someone who's bitter that they're losing. This isn't uh, Todd the bitter limit hold'em player who can't beat the game anymore like he did back in 2005 and now is coming up with excuses. I'm still winning. Okay? I'm not making this up. I'm still winning. If anybody doubts it, I I can prove it to you. So this is not a matter of me losing and trying to come up with excuses. But I have noticed in 2019 that there is one player on that network in the Limit Hold'em games with a very specific play style with certain other idiosyncrasies that make him easy to identify. These are anonymous tables, so you can't see who you're playing against. You can only see uh, player one, player two, player three, so you have no idea who you're playing against. But sometimes you can start to figure out not who they are, but at least it's the same person as like yesterday and the day before by certain things people do. You can tell by their play style, by the amount they buy in, by the amount they rebuy when they bust, uh, just other behaviors. You can't even chat there, but you can pick certain... Uh, they, they have pre-selected phrases, you could say, like, ha, 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 nice hand, wow, stuff like that. So, you know, how people use those, how people use the emojis on there. You just get an idea from seeing the way people act, both poker play-wise and in other ways, to where you start to notice patterns to where you see the same people over and over that you're convinced are the same people, even though you don't have proof of that. So there's one guy that I'm pretty sure is the same person who has a pretty unique play style and also likes to pretend he's a fish by the way he buys in. Let me explain what I mean by that. When you take a seat at a a limit hold'em table on Bovada, you select what you buy in. But automatically, the default is to buy in for the minimum at the table. Then you can also quickly click to buy in for a pre-selected recommended buy-in which is usually, uh, what is it? Uh, It's usually 60 big blinds, I think. 
60 big blinds? Uh, no, six. Yeah, it's 60 big blinds. That's what it is. So like a 30-60 game, you'd be buying in for $1,800 if you did that option. The minimum buy-in is 10 big blinds, which is um, which is $300. I think they may have... Did, it's possible that they changed... I'm trying to think if they may have changed the standard recommended buy-in to 40 big blinds. But whatever. There's certain amounts that, that the pros always seem to buy in. They always seem to buy in for the minimum. That's the most common. They buy in for the minimum and then wait to see if the game is good and then buy in more. Because it's just fastest to do it that way. Because you don't know if the game's going. You don't know if it's if there's fish in the game. You've got to kind of observe it for a second. So what, 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 what the pros do is they just quickly sit at a table with a minimum, sit out, and, and, and look at what's going on. Look if the game's going. Look if, if, if there's fish in the game. And then they'll sit in and, and add, add funds there if they want to play. So like at a 30-60 limit holder, if you see someone sit with a minimum of 300, usually it's a pro. Not always, but but usually it is. If you see someone sit with whatever the recommended standard buy-in, 1,200, 800, whatever it is, uh, again, usually it's a pro. But if you see any other amount that someone manually enters or it's something that looks like their whole bankroll, it's usually a fish. So like if you see someone sit with $897.23, that's usually a fish sitting with his entire bankroll. So when you see that, uh, usually you want to play him right away because you assume that's a fish, and usually it is. Well, one guy on there apparently wants to entice pros to play with him. He will sit with amounts like that, and he'll wait. And that that's the tip-off here is because fish don't wait. Fish want to play right now. So if a fish sits and nobody's there, they're not going to sit and wait. They're just going to close the software or go to another table. So a fish is not going to sit there with $897.23 and wait for an hour for someone to sit. Anyone who's doing that is pretending to be a fish. So there, there was a guy who was clearly doing this for hours and hours every day, sitting by himself. But why would he want this? Why, why would he want to trick pros, other pros, into playing it? Most of the pros on there avoid each other. Most of the pros there do not want to play unless they've determined there's a fish there, which is yeah, it takes a little bit of time to do because... Nobody has any scream names on there. You can't. Well, one reason you would want to play other pros is if you have an edge on them, they don't realize. Like, maybe you're cheating in some way. It could also be that you just think you're really good and you can crush everybody. So it could be either one. But that by itself doesn't say anything or prove anything, of course. So that by itself didn't really alarm me. But what I did notice was that this guy was just absolutely, positively dominating every single time he played. Yeah, he'd lose a few pots. Yeah, sometimes he'd start off down a few hundred or a thousand at most. But then he'd have these comebacks, and he would. I'd watch him just take thousands after thousands after thousands from the game, day after day after day. He would crush heads up. He would crush six max. He would crush three or four-handed. The guy just couldn't lose. He was winning insane money. Especially for games that don't go all the time. I was surprised I could still win despite this guy's presence there just taking so much money off the table. He killed me all the time. He killed everybody. I did well enough against the other people to where I was still winning. But boy, this guy was taking a lot out of the games. 
So at first I thought, okay, this guy's just running super hot. And he seemed like a good player. In fact, he seemed really good. Like he, he just, he, he really knew the right moves to make. And it seemed like the few times he made a wrong move, it worked out for him. Like, you know, he, he'd raise you on the turn. You three, with, with, with you know, middle pair, you three bet him out of position. And you're correct. He calls, and and then and then he spikes uh, trips on the river, and he raises you. So like, when he would make a mistake, often he'd be rewarded for it. But what I saw most often with him is this guy just hit hand after hand after hand. This guy just wasn't missing. And that was the thing I noticed most with him is he just seemed to hit a high percentage of the hands where he would see a flop. Including heads up, where he didn't fold very often, but when he played, boy, was he hitting a lot. He also seemed to know when to put in the action. And not always just, ba- not, not necessarily based upon what you're holding, but more upon based what he was going to eventually get. And this guy was just winning so much money and hitting so many hands. And it also seemed that it was rare that he would put in a whole lot of action and then lose the hand. That just didn't happen very often to him. It happened once in a while. But it it didn't happen very much. It seemed like there was a lot of action in the hand and he's involved, he's going to end up winning it. So after thinking about the whole thing, I thought that maybe this guy can see what's coming. That maybe he can't see what your cards are. Maybe he can do that too, but maybe he can see which cards are coming. And if you can see which cards are coming on the turn in the river, or the flop for that matter, you can tailor your playstyle to that. And you can only make sure to put the action in if you're pretty sure you're going to get there. And then you, you know, lose a few on purpose, but and sometimes you're going to lose just because your opponent has a monster and you don't know it because you can't see his whole cards. But if you can see what's coming, you're going you're to just, just kick ass because you know when to put a lot of action in, you know when to see the flop, you know when to over or underplay your hand, or even to fold early. Something I, I found this guy was amazingly good at was knowing when the right time to check behind was heads up. So let me give you a a simple example. Let's say he has jack eight. We're playing heads up. He raises on the button. And, and, uh, you know, let's say you call with ace high or something. It doesn't matter what you call with, but, uh, the flop comes queen nine, four. He's got jack eight. He's got the gut shot draw. Pretty much it. So you check, and he checks. Now, that's not all that uncommon. A lot of limit holding players do that. A lot of limit holding players assume that your range of just calling will hit something like queen nine, and you're going to check raise, and they don't want that to be, so they want to just try to get a free card, and then go from there. So he'll check behind. Then the turn. Let's say the turn's a blank, a three or something. Uh, let's say you've got ace high. If you bet into him, it seems like he's always calling. 
If you check, he's going to check. Unless you have like a, a guard, for some reason he he knows you've got a garbage hand, he's going to bet. But but uh, but a lot of times he's 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 just checking there too. Check check. And then the river will be like an eight where he he makes third pair. And and then if you check to him, he's going to bet. And and if you bet, he's going to call and he's going to beat you. Now, what's so amazing about that hand? Does that sound pretty standard? Well, here's the problem: is that it seemed that he always knew the best way to do it. Like I'd have times where I'd I'd have some uh, big hand, and I'm waiting him to you know I'm waiting for him to bet it so I can check raise him. No, he he doesn't bet. He he waits for the to hit the low pair or something. And it seems like he always hits it though. It seems like if I bet into him on the turn with ace high, he's going to call and then hit the pair in the river every time. Like this just happened so often that I I I could never successfully run him off the hand if he was checking behind. It seemed like he was checking behind, he's either there already or is going to get there somehow. At least get there enough to beat me. So I thought about it and I go, wait a minute. Let's say the guy can't see your cards, but he can see that when the whole thing's said and done, he's going to end up with a pair of eights, which is third pair. What's the best way to play that and limit hold him in position? Oh, the best way to play it is, uh, especially if you think that the board is in the range of the person who called you, is to kind of try to get to the end cheapest and see what happens. So you don't want to put in a ton of action if all you're going to end up with is third pair, but at the same time you don't want to fold heads up if you're going to end up with third pair. So what you really want to do with third pair is kind of get to the end cheaply and, 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 and see the river and hope the guy will bluff into you or hope that you can bet and he'll call with ace high. So that would make sense. If he can't see your cards... And the board is queen nine four, and he's got jack eight. The smartest thing he can do is at that point try to see it cheaply, and hope you just bluff into him if you don't have it. And if you do have it, he'll get off cheap. But what about times where he completely misses? Well, that's when he fires. That's when he can fire because he knows that he's not going to get there. So he can either just check fold and and just not not bother to continue, or usually just you know, he can fire and figure that. Uh, if you don't have anything, you're going to fold too. And if you check-raise him, then he can drop it very easily. So th- That's really the type of thing I was observing him doing. That and just, it seemed like he just hit a ton of hands that he'd play. It was so rare for him to miss. So rare for him to take coolers. And I thought he really plays the way someone would play if they know what's coming. If they know what they're eventually going to end up with. Now, did I analyze this mathematically and prove that this guy must be a super user in some way? No. It's kind of hard to do, actually, because of the the hand histories that don't have any indication of who you're playing with. I can observe it. I can say, oh, I know this is the same guy from yesterday, but there's no way to... That's From a hand history standpoint, that's hard to do. You'd have to go notate it in some way and then have whatever software you have analyzing it be able to see that notation that that's the same person that the player four today is player two yesterday and really to prove this you need a mass number of hands the more the better so it's not easy to prove from the side of the player and this is a problem with those anonymous tables that's a vulnerability is that if cheating is happening it's hard to prove and hard to detect 
so th- this guy, he could just be a, a really good player who's just running really, really well and playing with a lot of confidence and just happens to be hitting everything and also playing well because, number one, he's good, and number two, he's just feels like he's going to hit everything and just makes all the right moves. But it could be cheating. And it's not just against me. I watch him against others, and he just crushes every time. He doesn't run bad. And look, if you could see what's coming, then you could maximize the action you put in when you're going to eventually get there. And you can minimize the action you put in when you're only going to end up with a mediocre hand by the end. You come up with a pretty effective strategy of just barreling when you miss and then folding at any sign of resistance and getting there cheaply when you have a mediocre hand and putting in a ton of action when you're going to get there big. You'll win a lot of money doing that with that simple strategy if you could see the entire board before you play the hand. So what I did is I put out some feelers. I posted on Poker Fraud Alert. I posted on 2 Plus 2. And I, I put out some feelers to see if any other Limit Hold'em players have observed this. But nobody responded yes or no. I didn't get people saying, hey, I, I'm playing, I play those Limit Hold'em games. You don't know what you're talking about. This guy's not cheating. And I, I didn't get, yeah, you're right. I've played. I've noticed the same thing. I've gotten neither. I've gotten a few idiots you know, who aren't actually playing those games making some dumb comments to me on 2 Plus 2, but for the most part, people are ignoring it. I haven't had one useful response either way. And that's partially because Limit Hold'em just as a, a dying game is not played that much on there. The game doesn't go all that often, and I think we're not looking at that many people who play it regularly who then also read 2 Plus 2's Bovada thread. So have I reported it to Ignition? Have I reported it to Bovada? No. Why? Why would I not report it? Um, It's because they get these type of reports every day. Um, they they get people who erroneously or they, they it's not you know, the people believe they're right, but the people who lose either due to bad luck or lack of skill or sometimes a combination of both, they believe it's rigged. They believe that uh, someone's cheating them. I've had people tell me online that I'm cheating them, even people who don't know who I am. You know, I'm using some different name or or it, you know back when. Bovada had chat. You know, I have people saying, "Oh, you must work for the site. Oh, you're cheating. Oh, I know. You know, you're beating me, cheater. I know how you're doing it." Just because I'm running well at the time, they get tons of complaints daily there from people who insist that they're being cheated. So, if I were to make a complaint like this, they would skim it and say, "Up, oh, it's another idiot who thinks he's being cheated because he's losing," and that would be that. So I figured the only way I'm going to be able to get anything done about this is if I can get other players, other respected limit hold'em players who win there, 
to also observe this and come to the same conclusion. Maybe they'll decide I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just up against a good player who's running well, who's just owned me, who's owned everybody. Maybe. So I'm not sure about this. I'm not anywhere near sure. But I think at this point, given the history of what's happened, it's worth bringing out. Now, I'm I, looking at 2 plus 2. Someone wrote this. Someone wrote this yesterday. It's anonymous. It doesn't make sense to super use limit hold'em when nobody can track you. Uh, when nobody can track you at no limit hold'em where you get more action and make more money anyway. Second reason it doesn't make sense because it's, it's likely much more obvious to catch someone super using at limit hold'em than no limit where the player pool is smaller. Well, okay. Second point, he, he, he's got the point there that if there are more people playing no limit it's easier to get away with super using but first of all remember that a lot of the super using happened like on, on absolute poker there was more happening at limit than no limit but uh, ub was on both so don't just say because it's limit hold'em it's, it's not it's not worth doing or you know the, you can make a lot of money on limit hold'em doing it and I said there, because it's under the radar, because there's not many limit holding players, this person may feel they can get away with it because it can be a death by a thousand cuts situation where they're just slowly beating everybody in a lot of different hands rather than just always knowing what to do right and no limit in, in huge pots. If I were to be a cheater there, I wouldn't be, but let's say I had the ability to and I was willing to from a moral standpoint, okay? Neither of which are true, but let's say that was the case, that I I could cheat there and I was willing to cheat there. I think I would do, I think I would choose to do it at Limit Hold'em. I think that would be the smarter place to do it. There's fewer eyes on you and you can do it over a lot of different hands rather than... uh, trying to win big pots uh, in no limit where, where you're getting it in at the right time. And after you do that enough, people start to be suspicious. Especially if you can't see the whole cards, if what you can really just see is what the board is. Not that that wouldn't be valuable in no limit too, it'd be very valuable, but I'm telling you that this it's not far-fetched the person would choose to do the limit hold'em. Maybe they're doing it at no limit, too. I'm not even watching those games, so maybe they're doing it there, too. Mike Haven, who's a moderator on 2 Plus 2, said, whether it's limit or no limit, surely an honest site these days would have, its, would have methods and statistics that would highlight a single big outlier in terms of average amount one per hand played and it gets all of their players' average winnings per hand. And they do something about it. I, I find it difficult to believe they would need their attention drawn to it by another player if they're honest and would react if they received such a report by another player. I don't agree. Uh, Bodog has been notoriously bad with security and with policing cheating on the site. That, that's one big flaw over there. 
they used to have a big problem with bots that I actually proved. And they didn't care. This is many years ago. But believe me, this guy, I've watched him. This guy is killing it. This guy is destroying it. His win rate is way higher than everybody else. I'd love to see the stats on this guy. I mean, the, the, I don't know how many big blinds per hundred he's winning, but it's a lot. It's, it's an insane number. We sit in these six max games and you know, six max 30, 60, and af- after a few hours, the guy's up 5K. He's up 5K. You know, I'm up uh, 1K if I'm lucky, and everybody else is getting crushed. So we'll see where this goes. Now, what's interesting is since I posted this on 2 plus 2, I haven't seen the guy sitting with that trademark amount of money, which I mentioned, which I wasn't sure if I should mention or not, that he was sitting with, with amounts of money to pretend he's a fish. I was like, maybe I'm going to give away one one method I have to identify him, but I decided since I'm probably not going to be proving anything and I'm probably not going to get anything done about this, maybe at least I can bring other people's attention to him and have them avoid him. But I did think maybe he's going to read 2 plus 2 and just stop doing that. But good, at least if he stops doing that, then it's going to stop enticing people to play with him. Because other pros were playing with him, believing him to be a fish from that amount of money he's sitting with. That he was doing for sure. Now that's not against the rules, but that he was doing for sure, of sitting with an amount of money to trick people into thinking he's a fish. Including heads up. So that's what's going on with that. Now much more there. I'll let you know if there's any further updates. I'm not going to play this guy anymore. Like, I'm going to try to avoid him, and if he's in the game, unless it's a good game, I'm not going to. I'm not going to be there with him. Like, I'm not going to run away if he, if it's a good game, he happens to be there. But if it's a marginal game, he's there. I'm going to quit. And if uh, I'm definitely not playing him heads up anymore. Definitely going to avoid this guy. See if I got any texts. Someone asked, uh, are those pics of Vanessa Russo in Hustler Hustler Magazine legit? Are there pictures of her in Hustler? That's kind of hard to imagine. Are they nude pictures? I I don't recall them being in... I don't recall her being in Hustler. Um, I have to imagine any pictures of her are probably highly airbrushed and filtered or whatever. I've seen some print pictures of her that don't really look very much like her, that look way better than she really looks in real life. And that's that's very standard. It's not just done for her. But really, you, you can't trust... When you see the way someone looks in a magazine, that's often quite different from how they look normally. So you can't really trust that. All right, let's move on. Phil Ivey continues to have more fallout from his situation with Borgata. If you remember, Phil Ivey is dodging collections. He owes more than $10 million to Borgata from that lawsuit over the edge sorting in Baccarat. 
And despite that, all the way up until just recently, he had a poker room, a high limit room in Aria named after him called Ivy's Room. It was called the Ivy Room, actually. So the Ivy Room in the Aria has finally had its name changed. And we think it's because of the whole Borgata situation. Aria and Borgata are both MGM properties. And since Ivy owes Borgata over $10 million as a result of that lawsuit, Aria has cut ties with him. Joey Ingram posted a picture of them changing the nameplate on the High Limit Room within the Poker Room from the Ivy Room to Table 1. So it's now called Table 1. No longer called the Ivy Room. Phil Ivy also hasn't been there in a long time, and in fact, uh, some people are doubting that Phil Ivy is ever going to play poker again in a public setting in Nevada because of this judgment against him. That could also be a reason. But it's probably because it's the same company he owes the money to. There is also speculation now that in addition to his name being taken off the room, that he is banned at all MGM properties. That has not been confirmed. But that's speculation that perhaps that's part of it as well. I do find it strange that they kept the Ivy Room as long as they did. Here the guy owes the company over $10 million from the lawsuit. And yet they have a room named after him. So someone finally realized the absurdity of this. And even though it's different hotels, it's the same company. So they changed it. I have a feeling we will not see Phil Ivey at the World Series of Poker this year. I have a feeling we won't see him playing any kind of poker in a casino setting in the United States until this whole thing is resolved, if ever. He may be hiding forever from this judgment. It's not like it's pocket change. It's, it's well over $10 million. So... That's the latest Phil Ivey update. I'm sure there will be more as time passes here. And I will give you those updates. That was a quick topic, wasn't it? Feels almost weird to include that uh, in the list of things we covered. But we covered it. Nothing more to say. They, they They changed the name of the room. Carl Icahn... Investor Carl Icahn wants to change something with Caesars. So he wants to change two things. Carl Icahn revealed something that very few people knew. That he was, and still is, a 10% stakeholder in Caesars. Wow. So Carl Icahn, of all people, owns 10% of Caesars. And he said that he wants Caesars to either have a change in leadership or, even better, sell. He feels that uh, the company has a good future. Carl Icahn 
bought low with Caesars, but he feels some changes are necessary if it's going to become profitable. He thinks the company has a lot of potential, but it's not going to get there unless they take some action. So Carl Icahn said that there needs to be new leadership. He wants representation on the board at Caesars. And he wants them to hang on and not appoint a new CEO as Mark Fasora, the current CEO, is going to be leaving very soon. He was supposed to be leaving in February of this year. But that is uh, delayed until April. The shareholders agreed to let him stay till April. But Icon does not like him at all. Carl Icon wants Mark Fasora gone immediately. And if not immediately, at least uh, no longer than April. And Icon says that he is going to put together a list of candidates to take his place if necessary. So he he really wants in on this. Icon wants actively in on the process of deciding the future of Caesars. So as I said, he wants representation of the board. And he wants in on the whole process to find a new CEO after Fasora is gone, which will be very soon. Icon has been building his position in the company. He hasn't always owned 10%, but he's been uh, rapidly buying up shares of the company because he feels the stock is undervalued. And what he really would like to see is that Caesars sells. Why? Because he believes that will boost the value of the stock. He believes a sale of Caesars will make the stock go up. And that's the whole reason he has a stake in Caesars. He's, he's just investing. He wants he wants to make money from it. He thinks the best way to do that is for Caesars to sell. But at the very least, he wants another CEO in charge as soon as possible. And one that he approves of. You may remember recently we discussed how Golden Nugget and Caesars were discussing merging. And that uh, Tillman Fertitta of Golden Nugget was hoping to uh, be the, the future CEO of Caesars. That they would merge and he'd become CEO. Well, it turned out that Tillman Fertitta actually got involved in the whole thing because he's impressed that Carl Icahn is rapidly buying up shares of Caesars. So once he heard that Icahn has uh, a growing stake in Caesars, Tillman Fertitta reportedly bought 4 million shares of Caesars himself. So with all this going on, with Icon buying more and more of Caesars and now owning 10% and with the Tillman Fertitta following, you would think that this would be good news for the stock. 
Well, it is. Since Carl Icahn's filing, and and this was announced, this is the filing where he uh, acknowledged that he has 10% of Caesars now. The price of Caesars stock rose 5%. In addition, Caesars has gone up 42% this year. But it is still down 27% compared to a year ago. So it's really taken a beating uh, through, you know, th- through the most of 2018, but then has risen in 2019 so far. So that's where that stands at the moment. Will Caesars sell? I don't know. But, but Icon is going to really try to push that to happen. What if Caesars were to sell? How would this affect us as customers? Uh, what about the World Series, first of all? Would that remain? Likely, yes. It would likely stay. Would there be different people in charge? Probably not. They'd probably keep the same employees, the same management employees, at least. Uh, would the World Series change locations? Probably not. It's probably going to change soon anyway to that uh, Caesars Convention Center, but I have to imagine that the new owners would keep that in place. So probably World Series-wise, we'd see the same thing. It would depend who they sold to. If they sold to MGM or, or, or some something like that, then you might see a merger of, of major programs. Otherwise, it would be very similar. Otherwise, just be a different owner, but the customer's experience would be pretty similar to before. But it's still interesting to watch. And it is interesting that he thinks that Caesar's stock is undervalued. Icon does have a, a pretty good track record with evaluating things like this, including with buying and selling gambling companies. Uh, last year, he sold Tropicana Entertainment to a company called El Dorado for $1.85 billion and profited there. In case you're wondering about the Caesars bankruptcy and how that's going, uh, they are still heavily in debt. They have about $9.6 billion that they're currently in debt. But when they filed for bankruptcy about two years ago, they had $25.6 billion they were in debt. So they are going the right direction. Because if, if after filing that bankruptcy, if they went the wrong direction, that might be... Is in debt. We wouldn't want that. We will watch what occurs with this, and if there is any talk of a Caesar sale or a new CEO, I will let you know that on the show. Moving on to another casino topic Ocean Resort in Atlantic City. is changing ownership once again. This this place is a mess. This place always has been a mess. Uh, It was supposed to be something really big and really influential in the area. And it wasn't. (laughs) It's, it's, It's been one failure after another. 
Now, it wasn't originally Ocean Resort Casino. It was originally the Revel. It was a $2.6 billion company. Or not company, property. $2.6 billion. A beautiful property. I've never been there, but it's a beautiful property that was supposed to change everything in Atlantic City, and instead it was an appalling failure. It was designed very poorly. It was marketed very poorly. They did everything wrong. So it failed. It was very expensive to run, too. It needed to take in a fortune to to break even. They did everything wrong. So it, it actually went through... First it closed, and then it went through a number of, of uh, planned sales at a deep discount. It opened as the Rebel, uh, the Revel, not the Rebel, the Revel in uh, April 2012. In the next two and a half years, they declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy twice and finally closed in September 2014. Then they we're going to sell to Glenn Straub's Polo North Country Club for $90 million. So there's a $2.6 billion property selling for $90 million, but then it fell through. But it did sell to Brookfield Asset Management later that month for $110 million. But then two months later, Brookfield backed out of the deal. So then a few months later, in April 2015, it was sold, indeed, to that Polo North Country Club for $82 million. So that seemed like a hell of a deal, right? A $2.6 billion property sold for $82 million? Can you imagine? That shows you what a fail it was. That shows you how many problems it had. And they were going to reopen it under the name TEN, T-E-N, in all capital letters. And they kept delaying, delaying, delaying. Well, it never opened as TEN. It eventually opened as Ocean Resort Casino in June 2018. One of the uh, listeners of this show went there and and over the summer and told me it was a disaster. Told me that uh, everyone was confused. Everyone was incompetent. There were gigantic lines. There were lots of rookie mistakes being made. Nobody knew what they were doing. It it was fail all over again. Uh, By the way, opening up as Ocean Resort Casino was again. It was a different company. It was uh, AC Ocean Walk bought it for two hundred million. So this guy uh, Straub actually sold it at a profit, pretty good profit. AC Ocean Walk bought it for $200 million, called it Ocean Resort Casino. It reopened in the summer of 2018. And it had a lot of problems. It, it, could, it, 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 wasn't, it was losing money. It was still losing money. And as I said, according to a listener of this show, the place was a disaster operationally. Nobody knew what was going on. 
he even told me he tried to make some suggestions to them to improve some basic things they were doing wrong and they weren't listening. They had a status match that people were taking advantage of and, and using them as like a stepping stone status match for because in Atlantic City there's a lot of competition, so they do a lot of status matching of each other. But uh, someone found a trick to where if they match at Ocean, they'd get a higher tier than they really deserve, and then they take the the card they'd match at Ocean, and then take that somewhere else to get to get the higher tier they otherwise couldn't have gotten. So it was like a, a, a three way status match. So like, let's say card A. You want to match to different properties, card B, but card B won't give you that match because they don't think you've earned high enough to get it. But then you go to Ocean and see they will match you. So you you match at Ocean, and then you take it back to card to, to property B with for card B, and then they will match you to that to the Ocean card because they think that's a hard card. So that was going on. So they had to change that. They did a lot of stupid things over there. I don't know what that will because I'm not familiar with the Atlantic City market that well. I'm too far from there. But suffice to say, there was a lot of mistakes made. On January 10th, 2019, the majority owner of AC Ocean Walk, his name is Bruce Bruce, uh, Dayfick, announced that they had sold the casino And then it was uh, announced a few weeks later that it was Luxor Capital Group, which is not the same Luxor in Las Vegas. It's totally different. This is a New York-based hedge fund. So it has changed hands again. It's going to remain Ocean Resort Casino, but the owner, the, 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 the previous ownership of Ocean gave up on it. The property is very tempting to buy because it was built for 2.6 billion and is beautiful. So it's the nicest property. It's it's new, or relatively new. It's seven years old now, but it's state of the art. There's a lot of very good things about it. So who would not want to buy something at a small fraction of the price of what it cost to build just seven years ago? It seems like a steal. And then these companies buy it and go, crap, <laughs> this thing is laid out very poorly. This thing is very expensive to maintain. This thing requires a lot of employees to keep running. This thing is, is not uh, very customer friendly the, of the way it's built. There's a lot of design mistakes. There's just a lot of hurdles that had to be overcome to for the place to be profitable. And when you buy a business, it's not just how 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 good of a deal am I getting on this business, it's can the business be profitable. And if the business is destined to lose money, then even if you get a spectacular deal buying it, if unless your only plan is to sell it for more money, then it's not as good of a buy as it, it can appear to be.
So that's been the problem. And I don't know if, if a lot of these problems they have there are not ones which are easily corrected. But what they really need at Ocean, and I, and I say this as someone who's never set foot in the place, but just from what I've read about it and what I've heard from people who've talked to me about it, what I feel they really need at Ocean are some very, very experienced people in the gambling world, in the casino industry, to come there, figure out exactly what's wrong, exactly why things are not working, exactly why they're failing, exactly why people don't like it there, and figure out what the actual cost would be to make the necessary changes to where it can be successful. Because if they just kind of try to pick up where Revel left off and try to make it profitable, it's not going to work. There's a reason why Revel dropped the whole thing for such a spectacular loss of almost 100% so soon after building it. They spent $2.6 billion building it and were about to sell it for 80-something million two and a half years later. Now, why would they do that? Why would they do that unless they determined that this place is such a disaster that they just want it out of their hands? That they're about to take almost 100% loss just to get this off their hands? That it's that hard to turn a profit there? So I, I have a feeling it's going to keep changing hands until someone makes a major change over there, if it's even possible. But I've heard the layout's bad, the whole thing's just expensive to run. There's a lot of a lot of issues there that are not just easy to snap your fingers and say, oh, do this differently. It's not like that. But they, they need people who are very experienced with this, who are very good at this, to be able to honestly determine what needs to be done. An operational fail, there's no excuse. When you've got enough hurdles already stopping you from becoming profitable, the last thing you want to do is make boneheaded operational mistakes. So you've got that going on too. It's, It's really a disaster. All right. Before I go on to the next topic, I am going to play the Eric Benzamokin ad. So I can take a break. I can use my biotin rinse to refresh my throat a bit. Maybe go to the bathroom. Eric Benzamokin is, uh, I mean, you've heard him on the show. You, you hear how he knows what he's talking about. And I I would definitely trust him as my attorney if I needed one. And uh, he's he's been a very good friend to this show. And a a good friend personally that uh, I got to know through this show. So I'm going to play his ad. And I'm going to go take care of things and try to do the remaining topics here we have uh, let's see here 
three topics left. I can do that. See, I told you. I told you no topic tonight was going to be super long. I knew it. I knew tonight I was going to be able to do more. But I'm really annoyed. I I, uh, I told people on Poker Fraud Alert that the Utah Jazz were going to upset the Thunder tonight. And by all appearances, it, it looked like the Thunder were going to win before the game. You know, here the Thunder are at home. They have, they're the better team. They have a better record. They, they don't really have any injuries of, of consequence going on. So I said the Thunder are going to are going to lose, though. I said, I, I'm telling you, the Jazz are going to win tonight. It's going to surprise everybody. I meant to do a money line bet on them, just outright winning the game. The spread was like minus four, which already was suspicious because it looked like it should have been a lot higher. It's what I call the Trapper John MD thread. Not the spread, not thread. The, cha- the Trapper John MD spread, where it's a trap. It, it's uh, the, the spread looks too low. It looks like a great buy and then you, you, you bet on it and you lose. But I said, forget the spread. Just outright, I think Utah is going to win. Well, it turned out to be a very close game the whole way. And it actually went to overtime twice. It was a two overtime game and the Jazz lost by one. So my bet lost. If I had bet the spread, it would have won. But uh, I bet money line, and it lost uh, 148-147. I was on the right track there, but uh, lose by one in double overtime. Pretty painful. All right. I, I just took a look at that. This happened while we were doing the show. Here is Eric's ad. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money, or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute, so you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. 
If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. All right, let's move on. I'm ready. I am ready to finish the final three topics. Poker Stars has upset people once again. And I, I knew it was going to happen. I, I knew that the temporary love affair with Poker Stars was not going to last long. Since Amaya purchased Poker Stars from the Scheinbergs, things have gone downhill quickly between players, you know, po- pro poker players, and. Uh, the ownership of poker stars. Basically, Amaya is very pro-unfriendly. They very much were trying to stress the recreational player experience. They they thought the pros uh, took more than they gave and weren't a valuable asset to have there. They dropped a lot of the sponsored pros. They made a lot of different changes. They, they raised the rake. Uh... Most notably, they screwed the Supernova Elites by abruptly changing the benefits of it, which people spent so long to earn. A lot of things happened that weren't very good and really eroded people's faith in Poker Stars and the new ownership there. That's all old news. I'm not going to rehash all of that. But they temporarily got some goodwill again in January. And uh, I should say late December... And January. And this was thanks to what they did at the PCA, the Poker Stars Caribbean Adventure, which has been going on for many years now. But they held a very successful 25K tournament there. Uh, And people could win their way into the tournament through a thing called the Platinum Pass. And something that really looked good for them is they were giving away some platinum passes too just for goodwill so for example they gave one to kevmath for all he's done for poker just just for being kevmath they gave one to him so kevmath got to play that 25k tournament for free and he got his uh, his travel package there for free too it's all part of the platinum pass they just gave it to him they gave one to linda johnson for similar reasons They gave one to that guy who was on video crying when his wife gave him a trip to the World Series in 2019 for Christmas. They gave one to Joey Ingram. So they gave out some of these platinum passes just to kind of extend the olive branch to the pro poker community saying, hey, we care about you guys and we're going to give away these valuable passes to some well-liked people among you. And it worked. And not only that, the term in itself was very successful. It ended up with the biggest field for a 25K event ever. 
which considering how poker has declined over the years is pretty amazing. People loved this year's PCA. So when the whole thing was said and done, the poker community was very, very happy with poker stars. They, they were thrilled with poker stars for everything associated with the PCA. Boy, did they do it well. And even a lot of their critics were starting to come around and say, well, okay, maybe they're starting to do better. Maybe they are becoming more pro-friendly. But the honeymoon is over. The honeymoon is over. What has happened is that uh, the points players are going to get for playing tournaments has been vastly decreased. They have announced that they are uh, going to reduce... They're they're going to reduce the points people get for these uh, tournaments they enter, which which are points you can use uh, to redeem for rewards. That's important for professional tournament players who play very high volume to accumulate. So it's very important for to accumulate these points. What once earned a hundred points now only earns 45 points. So it's a a tremendous reduction of of 55%. They said this is a reduction in the overall amount of rewards some players will receive, but made in an area that we believe will have the least impact on their experience and enable us to place even more focus where we know it matters most. This includes... Offering the largest tournament guarantees, like the the twenty million euro uh, Winter Series guarantee in Southern Europe, uh, as well as other blah 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 blah. I'm not going to read the rest of it. So this is BS. They're, they're basically saying we're taking away these rewards for playing tournaments, but don't worry, we're going to reinvest the money in large tournament guarantee series. Well, no, they're not. Guarantees are not free money. Guaranteed poker tournaments are ones where the prize pool is guaranteed, but where the poker room tries to estimate the expected turnout. So this way there will not be an overlay, an overlay being where the the guarantee exceeds the amount of money they collect in buy-ins to where the company putting it on loses money. So just because there's a 20 million euro guarantee in the winter series, that, that doesn't mean that they're investing 20 million in it. That just means that they're guaranteeing there's going to be a prize pool of $20 million, probably because they have estimated it's going to be that anyway. So that's, that's the trick with a lot of these guarantees. I'll, I'll give you a simple example. At this Limit Hold'em tournament I just played at Commerce, there was a 50000 guarantee. That may sound pretty good, but the buy-in was 1100 <laughs> So... Uh, even if you ignore the 100, which is the, the tournament fee, a 1,000 going to the prize pool, uh, let's think about this. That means 50 players, and there's no overlay. That's it, 50 players. They're definitely going to get 50 players. They, they ended up getting like 90-something. It wasn't even close to 50. There was no way it was going to end up less than 50. There was no way. It wasn't going to happen. 
So the guarantee was meaningless. It's like the main event of the World Series. I think it, it was like a ten million guarantee. Well, okay, we, we come on. We we know it's uh, or it was, it was a guaranteed first prize. That's just right. Then they changed it. Never mind. But whatever, whatever it is, you know, they for the World Series of Poker. So they say, um, this is a fifty million guarantee. That all they need is five thousand people to to make that the World Series main event. So fifty million guarantee sounds like a lot, but if they know they're going to well exceed five thousand people, then it's, it, the guarantee is meaningless. So to say that. Oh, we're, uh, we're we're taking away your rewards, but don't worry, we're going to have more guaranteed tournaments. That that doesn't help you any. Now, if they're going to say we're going to we're going to give really really high guarantees that are unlikely to be met, and there'll be overlays over and over, well, then they may have a point. But that's not what they're saying. They're just trying to find something to claim they're giving the players in return for lowering their rewards. And they pulled the same crap during the Supernova Elite thing they did, where they took away people's Supernova Elite benefits, or they, they, they reduced them greatly. And then when the players complained and complained, what they ended up claiming that they were giving the players in return was a site-wide, meaning everybody is eligible, not just the Supernova Elite, a site-wide million-dollar free roll. <laughs> Sorry we took away these really, really great benefits that you worked forever and ever and ever to earn, spent a lot of money earning. Um, We're taking away a lot of them, but don't worry. We're giving you a million-dollar free roll that everybody in the site can play, and and your equity in it will probably be like two bucks. (laughs) I I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy that they tried to say that was the compensation, but they actually tried to say that. Negreanu actually wrote that in a blog at one point. It was an insult. They're just taking away those rewards because I think they realized, again, that the recreational player doesn't really notice the difference. The recreational player goes, oh, look, I have rewards. Cool. And it's the pro who's going, okay, well, I'm getting this many rewards. It's this, you know, this much effective rake back. Uh, you know, this is how much it's worth you know, per day, per month for me. What like it, it's it's the pro who breaks all this down, and is going to really notice this. The amateur doesn't give a crap. The amateur goes, "Oh, cool! They're giving me some rewards for playing a lot of tournaments. Oh, awesome! Oh, what can I get with this? Like that's that's they they don't really notice if it's been cut in half. So this was stars just saying, "Hey, we're we're giving away too much." You know what this reminds me of? When I was, uh, I don't know, nine years old, nine, ten years old or something, and my sister was very young. My sister was probably like two. And my brother's four years younger than me. So it was five or six. So my sister was just starting to learn about money. But being a toddler, she didn't really understand its value. 
She just liked the way the coins worked and knew that it was something called money. And it's supposed to be valuable, but that's all she could really understand. So my brother, trying to be nice, gave her a quarter. And she was very happy. So then what I did is I gave her 10 pennies. And boy, was she thrilled with the 10 pennies. She, she, she immediately forgot about his quarter and thought the 10 pennies was so wonderful. She was sure the 10 pennies was better than one quarter. And my brother tried to tell her, no, 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 I gave, I gave you more. But she couldn't understand. All she could see is I gave her 10 coins and my brother gave her one. And I laughed at my brother about this. Like he understood, he understood why it was happening too. Like he understood the mistake he made that uh, to a toddler, the toddler can't understand the value of, of a quarter versus a penny. They just see how many coins they're getting and think think it's cool. So this is very frustrating to him, and I think poker stars realize the same thing. Except the fish in this story are like what my sister as a two-year-old were in my story, that the fish just see they're getting something. They don't even bother to think about the value of what they're getting. They're just happy to see they're getting something. And so they're saying, why, why are we giving so much? We can lower it, and the fish will still be happy. They won't even notice the difference. The only one who knows the difference are the ones that, that we don't care about. Some people are pissed. I, I saw complaints on Twitter. And the Goodwill stars bought from the PCA has started to erode again. I do wonder why they even bothered extending this olive branch to the pro poker player at the PCA only to do things like this. I had just thought that Amaya is just hostile to pros, and that's the way it is. I was surprised to see what they were doing in the winter. I guess it's still winter, in the earlier winter. But they're back to their old ways. (laughs) Maybe they decided that uh, it's not worth keeping the pros happy after all. Screw it. It'll be interesting to see if they do the same thing with the PCA next year. They'll definitely have the Platinum Pass back. That was a big success. But I, I wonder if they're going to give away these free passes as readily as they did this go-around. All right, we're finally going to get to the Facebook topic. Finally. It's been a long time since I first brought this up on the show as a topic we will cover. And then we didn't cover it. But here we are tonight, and unless my house catches on fire, I am going to complete it and finally get this one in the can. So it's another scandal from Facebook. It's not getting a lot of play in the mainstream media, unfortunately. Part of it is because it's something that already happened and not something that's ongoing. 
And part of it is because it's hard for some people to understand. It's, it's a lot easier to understand the previous Facebook scandals where, where your info was vulnerable, where, where companies were able to see a lot of info on your Facebook account that you didn't grant them to see and that Facebook allowed them to do it. They, that type of stuff is very easy for the average person to understand and relate to. Whereas uh, this thing I'm going to talk about here, you'll understand it when I explain it, but for, for the average person trying to digest Facebook scandals, it's it's not something you can explain in two sentences. So that that's, I think, the main reason this hasn't really caught on anywhere. So this was something that happened from 2012 to 2016, but only really became apparent recently because of unsealed court exhibits. Facebook has been a very bad-behaving company. And people didn't realize this until last year. But I've realized this for many years. I've been warning people about Facebook for many years. I know some of you will ask me, then why are you on Facebook? Why do you use Facebook so much? I, 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 I do use Facebook a lot. Why do I use it if it's such a bad company? Well, because it's a monopoly. I, you don't have a choice. If, if you want to use something like that, that's where you've got to be. There, there's not a, a Facebook equivalent that I could be using. I'm not forced to use it, but uh, I, I like the interactions that I have on there with with other people. I just don't like the company that runs it. Facebook presents itself in a cute and cuddly fashion that it's, it's something that cares about you. It's something that wants to enable friendship. It's something that wants to bring people together. But in reality, it's, it's very cold and calculating and invades your privacy all the time without you having an idea that it's even happening. I wrote a tweet in December 2017 before the February 2018 Facebook scandal with Cambridge Analytica and all that stuff. I wrote that Google and Facebook commit privacy violations on a regular basis that would shock the average person if they were aware of what was really going on. And then sure enough, two months later, this is exactly what happened. Google hasn't had really had their day of reckoning yet, but Facebook has. And they were exposed. And, and now, since then, we've seen scandal after scandal to where we're starting to become desensitized to it, where, where Facebook has knowingly allowed our private data and private information to be accessed by third-party companies for money. There's been several scandals like this. And we had a whole show about that where Calwatt was on. We had a long discussion about it back in 2018, about a year ago. And what was said during that show was that since Facebook doesn't charge you to use it, 
you're not the customer, you're the product. And some people have a hard time thinking of it that way, but that's really true. You're the product that they are selling. And whether you like it or not, they're selling you, and not only in ways that you're aware of. There's a lot of shady things they've done, and and they're not very good at admitting to it or owning up to it. There's always different excuses. There's always lies. There's always claims of, of, of them fixing the things that were caught when in reality they didn't really fix very much. Honestly, they deserve a lot of penalty. They, they, there should be some action taken against them for everything they've been doing. There needs to be some laws passed protecting people from some of Facebook's practices. But this scandal actually doesn't have to do with violations of privacy, believe it or not. Facebook also decided to get into the business of in-app purchases and ripping people off that way. Now, what are in-app purchases? Well, in-app purchases are very common in the gaming world where you can play a free game and then in order to increase your chances to do well in the game or give your character more power or be able to score more points, whatever it is, you can make purchases for real money and that's how the game makes money. It's possible to play these games for free, but to do really well, you usually have to do these in-app purchases, or otherwise you just remain one of the lower-end players on the game. Some people are satisfied with that. Some people are satisfied with just the fun of the game itself, but if you really want to succeed and kick ass there, you've, you've, you've got to make these purchases, or otherwise you have no chance. And this has been going on in the gaming world for several years now, especially... Uh, This has become common through apps on phones. A lot of apps you can download for free, but then cost money once you're playing. A term for that is freemium. Unfortunately, these games can be very addictive, and people start to feel that they really want to spend money on these games. They've put so much time into these games, they've put so much effort into them, they've, uh, they really want to do well, and then they think, oh, okay, well, fine, I'll just buy this box for $10. And these boxes, it's actually, uh, they're known as loot boxes, they're kind of a form of gambling in a way, because you, you can't even just always buy what you want directly, you have to buy like some kind of box where there's only a chance to get what you want. So there's some chance you'll get something great, there's like a small chance. Uh, a better chance to get something good, and then a decent chance you're going to get something crappy. And if you don't get what you want, then you got to buy another loot box. So there's a lot of that in the online gaming world. And it's very effective, because people just keep spending and spending, and it becomes a vicious cycle. Where once you've spent, well, then you've got to spend more to keep up. Or you, you know, someone passes you, you want to get past them. And you feel you sp- you spent this much money, what's, what's another... and you should see how quickly money gets spent. I actually play a game that has a lot of in-app purchases. Being the cheap Jew that I am, I've spent a whopping $6 on it so far. 
But there's people in that game that have spent many thousands, many thousands to play a game with no upside other than just playing a game. It's not like they can spend it to win money. But apparently there was a class action lawsuit against Facebook over their business and marketing practices to where from 2012 to 2016, they generated tens of millions of dollars in revenue from children who were using their parents' credit cards to make these in-app purchases. There was a case called Bohannon et al. versus Facebook, Inc. It was filed in April 2012. There was a settlement in 2016. However, Facebook, it was very important to them to keep a lot of the exhibits presented under seal. So this way it present, prevented a scandal. They, they paid out, but they didn't have the really costly consequence of the public finding out of what was really going on. Well, in January of 2019, U.S. District Judge Beth Freeman ordered... Uh, an unsealing of a lot of the exhibits from this case. And there was a uh, website called Reveal that posted uh, 150 pages of exhibits that were made public there. So then there was uh, some analysis of of what these exhibits showed. And it it turned out uh, it was pretty bad what was going on. Basically, first of all, Facebook was trying very hard to get kids addicted to these games and then get the kids to uh, use their parents' credit cards to buy these in-app purchases. So these were games that aimed at kids that had premium purchases that could be made. And in many cases, the kids would just grab their parents' credit cards and use them. Now, California, where Facebook is located, and, and many other states, forbid credit card sales to minors. Which means if a minor uses a credit card online or anywhere else and makes a purchase, then the parents have a right to charge it back. That's true in California. That's true in other states. Not all states, but but, uh, many other states. Basically, uh, minors cannot make legal credit card charges. Now, the parents can do it on behalf of the minors, but the kids themselves cannot pay credit card charges. So if kids made a charge, even you know they grab their parents' credit card, even if the parents fall for leaving the credit card setting out, doesn't matter. It is the burden of the business to make sure they are actually making a sale to an adult as opposed to a minor. Well, Facebook 
didn't want that burden. Facebook knew that they were selling to kids. They knew that the sales would be much less if the adults had to approve them. So they tried as hard as they could to, first of all, look the other way. First, they'd, they'd very much entice the miners to want to make these purchases. And then second, they tried to make it very difficult for parents to get these refunds. In some cases, they made the parents believe that they were not entitled to it when they really were. And in other cases, they were just very difficult of actually providing the refunds. Between February 2008 and June 2012, Facebook's terms and conditions of payments specified all sales are final. Which, of course, is not true. Not if a miner did it. They also stated, uh, after removing the office sales are final in June 2012, they changed it to say, except as otherwise stated, purchases of credits are non-refundable to the full extent permitted by law. Notice the way that's worded. Except as otherwise stated, purchases of credits are non-refundable to the full extent permitted by law. What's missing there? What is missing there? That's right. They don't say anything about minors. They don't say anything about that the, the purchase must be made by an adult, that any purchases by minors are refundable. They left that out. Also, at no time did they try to get consent from parents for these purchases. Basically, they just take the credit card and that was that. This is from uh, something that was unsealed. In October 2011, plaintiff IB, a minor, asked his mother, Glynis Bohannon, for permission to spend $20 on his Facebook account to purchase Facebook credits he used in a game called Ninja Saga. IB gave his mother $20 and used her Wells Fargo MasterCard to purchase Facebook credits. IB claims that he was unaware that Facebook would store this credit card information and therefore continued to make in-game purchases in, in, in Ninja Saga. So basically, the mother said it's okay to make $20 worth of purchases, but he just kept buying more and more and more. Uh, this kid claimed, oh, I didn't know that my mom's card was still in there. He probably did, but the bottom line is they, they can't do that. They can't just get a permission for one purchase and then just keep letting the kid charge, charge, charge. But that's what happened. That's what happened with this kid, IB, which is uh, the beast answer Bohannon, as his, mom's, his mom is uh, Glynis Bohannon. So Glynis Bohannon's card was, charged, was ultimately charged hundreds of dollars, Ms. Bohannon sought a refund from Facebook, but was not provided one until after this action was filed. Facebook credits were developed by Facebook as a virtual currency payment system. A user who wanted to make a purchase with Facebook would buy Facebook credits, which could then be redeemed for various items or applications on Facebook. In 2013, Facebook credits were discontinued and replaced with a system called Facebook Payments. In December 2011, plaintiff J.W., a minor, took his parents' debit credit card without their permission and began to make a series of charges on Facebook through the use of Facebook credits. These charges total over $1,000. 
Unlike IB, JW did not have his parents' initial permission to make charges on Facebook. Upon learning of JW's actions, his father, Stephen Wright, uh, contacted Facebook to dispute the charges and request a refund. In this interaction with Facebook, Mr. Wright stated that neither he nor his wife had authorized the use of their credit card. Facebook provided Mr. Wright with a partial refund of $59.90. That's out of $59.90 out of $1,000 plus, despite a Facebook representative telling him that he's, quote, refunded the charges to your funding instrument. At the time, the Third Amendment complaint was filed. The rights had not been refunded. The remaining $999.30 spent by JW without their permission. So, so basically, over a thousand dollars was called. They complained, uh, was charged. They complained, and then they said, "Oh, sure, we're, we're refunding it." And they just gave them sixty dollars. They basically they gave them like six percent back, and hope they didn't notice, and then just wouldn't give the rest. So, this wasn't these weren't isolated incidents. It wasn't just this JW and IB. This was happening over and over, where Facebook would store the credit card. And they knew what they were doing. They didn't go, oh, we didn't think of that. Wow. Oh, if only we knew that storing the credit card on here would allow minors to keep making purchases without their parents knowing. No, that was on purpose, of course. And there's a reason why Facebook was so difficult in giving these refunds and why they put terms and conditions that all sales are final. Uh, Facebook also tried to falsely claim that there was a period of time that refunds could be requested, and after that period was done, there could no longer uh, be a refund request. Here's a little passage about that. When responding to inquiries regarding purchases made in the past 60 days, Facebook systematically tells its users that it's unable to issue refunds, although, in fact, internal internal Facebook discussions reveal that the company is able to refund transactions made as much as one year earlier. Furthermore, Facebook staff confirmed that the company's credit card processor is able to post a standalone credit to a customer's account any time. Facebook could always issue a refund by check or in, in any other mutually agreed method. Instead, Facebook claims to be, quote, unable to provide such refunds, falsely suggesting that such refunds are either technically impossible or genuinely prohibited by some outside authority or law. Can you imagine? So the parents don't discover this for some reason, call up more than 60 days later, and Facebook says, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we can only do, fa- we can only do credit card refunds after 60 days. I'm sorry. After 60 days, there's nothing we can do. But that's false. And, it, and in fact, it was found through these f- discussions within Facebook among their own employees that they knew that they could do a credit back to the actual charge for a year and that they could just do credits back to the credit card anyway at any point. I don't know if you guys realize this, but there, there's two types of ways that you can get credits on your credit card from, from a merchant. Uh, one is that a merchant can actually give a refund for a previous purchase. So let, let's say I went in and uh, uh, bought a hamburger, and uh, yeah, I bought a hamburger for $6. And I ate it, and then I, I got sick. And I went back to the business and said, hey, 
your hamburger got me sick. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Here, give us your credit card. We'll, we'll take that money back. So they, they, they take the $6 I paid and actually process that same $6 back to my credit card. Uh, this is the cheapest way for merchants to do it. And uh, this is why often when you bring things back that you bought by credit card, they tell you they will refund it back to the same method of payment. So sometimes they'll bring something back to the store and they're willing to give you a refund, but you they'll say, we can only do it to this credit card. We won't give you it back in cash. We won't do it to a different credit card, only to the one you originally uh, used to charge. Unless it's impo- unless the credit card is dead or something, then they'll make an exception. But that that's the reason. So that they can refund the purchase. They can refund all of it or part of it. Or they can give a standalone credit, which is basically like a negative charge. And in fact, back in the early, early days of online poker, that used to be the way you'd cash out. <laughs> you'd, they would do a credit to your credit card, even beyond anything you've bought in. So like, for example, on Planet Poker, which used to do this back in like one I'd buy in for like, say, $200. And let's say I won another 800 and I wanted to cash the whole thing out. They would refund my credit card the 200 and then they'd give me a standalone credit or like a negative charge of 800 So I'd see two things on my credit card statement. I'd see Planet Poker, or I'd see three things. Planet Poker 200, meaning that they charged me 200 Planet Poker minus 200, meaning that they refunded, they refunded the uh, purchase I made for 200 And then Planet Poker minus 800 which is a separate $800 credit they're giving me. Uh, credit card companies started balking at this when gambling sites were doing it, so that stopped. But uh, that that was done in the old days. But taking the gambling part out of it, companies can still do this. Company, any company, any time, can give you a credit, even one that was not against a previous charge. And of course, even if they can't, as mentioned there in that passage, Facebook could have sent people checks or, or a bank transfer. There's a lot. Of, it's not like Facebook can't give you a refund if they can't do it with a credit card. But they would tell people this, and it was frustrating for people calling up. So think of this. You're, you're a parent, and your, your bratty kid grabs your, uh, your, your debit card or your credit card out of your wallet and charges money on, on Facebook games. You call up Facebook. For whatever reason, it took you a few months to figure it out. You call up Facebook three months later, tell them what happened. You know the law's on your side, but then they say, look, I'm sorry, it's been 60 days. We only have 60 days to do it. And you try explaining it to them, no, it's, there's no 60-day deadline. This doesn't exist. No, 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 there is, sir. I'm sorry, 60 days is a, that's the maximum chargeback time. And you're stuck. They won't do it. And again, this wasn't a mistake. This was something that they just said to people in order to make them give up. And, and the truth is, most people do. Most people are not informed enough to know that there is no 60-day deadline on, on getting uh, charges back. Now, where 60 days sometimes exists is some credit card companies will have a 60-day window in which you can charge back to the credit card. So, for example, most credit cards you can't uh, call up and say, hey, you know that charge from a year ago? Uh, that company actually cheated me, so I'd like to charge it back. The, the credit card company will say, no, it's been too long. You have to do that within 60 days, usually. So that, that's where 60 days often takes place. That's where that limit really exists in many cases. But as far as the company itself, as far as the merchant itself giving you a credit, that could be at any time. 
And Facebook knew that. But they told people otherwise to fool people into thinking, oh, well, I'm just stuck. And you'd be surprised how many people will just give up after attempting to get a refund. These scams work because most people give up pretty easily. There's a certain percentage of people who never question it. A certain percentage of people just get mad at the kid but figure there's nothing they can do. They figure, well, my kid got my credit card. It's my fault for letting my kid grab my credit card without me noticing. My fault for not watching what he does on the computer. So, oh, well, I guess I'll just eat the $600 he charged. That's what a lot of the parents do. They don't even know they can get a refund. Others call up and they're told it's too late and they think, okay, it's too late. What can we do? Facebook wouldn't be lying. They're a huge company. I'm sure they're telling us the truth. Others know Facebook is wrong, but they don't know what to do from that point. So they just give up. Very few people will fight and fight and fight to the point where they'll finally get it made right. There are some companies that pull something that I call a negative checkoff scam. And that's a similar concept, except when people complain the loudest, they will give them the refund, knowing that a very, very high percentage of people either won't complain or will complain very weakly and then give up if if they get resistance. So that's why these these scams work. And the reason negative checkoff scams are so powerful is because the people most likely to interfere with the scams and expose them are made whole pretty quickly when they make a big deal about it. The loudest people get taken care of, everybody else gets screwed. That's what a negative checkoff scam is. This one uh, seems more kind of like uh, just a scam that hits just about everybody. I'm not really seeing reports that when people really made a huge deal out of it, Facebook refunded everything. But they actually instructed employees to lie to people about these things. They really wanted to mislead everybody into believing that uh, there's no way to get these refunds. And this wasn't just some shady guy on the internet setting up some uh, shady site to steal from people. This is Facebook. This is one of the biggest tech companies that exists. This is one of the biggest websites in the world. And they're doing crap like this. All the way through 2016. And it only stopped because of this lawsuit. So if you think you hated Facebook before, think about this. They're actually targeting minors. They were actually targeting minors. Here's another... uh, Another excerpt from uh, what was released. Facebook is aware of several reasons why minors often make purchases without permission from the parent or guardian. Ms. Stewart admitted in an email that refunds are often requested because, because, quote, a parent permits his child to spend a small denomination and doesn't realize the credit card information will be stored. Ms. Stewart noted that a purchase made with Facebook credits, quote, doesn't necessarily look like real money to a minor. Ms. Stewart is uh, an employee of Facebook, by the way. I'm not sure what her position is here. Um, In fact, when the developer 
Rovio reached out to Facebook regarding, quote, an alarmingly high refund rate for the game Angry Birds. Facebook analyzed the profile of users who were issued refunds. Facebook's analysis demonstrated that the average age of the child playing was only five years old and that, quote, in nearly all the cases, the parents knew their child was playing Angry Birds but didn't think the child would be allowed to buy anything without their password or authorization first. A Facebook survey of users elicited complaints such as, quote, she's only seven years old, she did not know she really paid real money, and, quote, do not store our credit card info, my child was able to click one button to make the purchase. So they'd store the credit card, and it would just be one click for the child to make, and it's done. Five-year-olds making purchases like this just because the parents uh, bought one thing on there and, and it automatically stored the card without their knowledge. Oh, and one other thing. When those pop-ups would come on to make those in, in-app purchases, it always defaulted to the most expensive purchase. So if you could purchase four different things and one's $50, one's uh, $30, one's 10 and one's 5 the default's 50 isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? So that shows you what type of company Facebook is. That shows you why I call Mark Zuckerberg a limousine liberal. Mark Zuckerberg, the uh, guy who cares about you, who cares about the little guy, who cares about making the world a better place. He may steal from kids, but uh, he wants to make the world a better place. Right? He may trick five-year-olds into making purchases, but he's a swell guy. Except for that. Except for stealing your information and selling it. He's a good guy. <sighs> I'd really love to see some consequence Um, these big these big uh, tech companies are are not good at self regulation. They're not uh, they're not ethical on their own. And the most frustrating thing is through the politics that they have, through the positions that they put forth. It makes you believe that they're against greed. That they're against the big guy taking advantage of the little guy. They claim they're for inclusion. And they claim they're for everything that seems sensitive and right. And then they, in reality, this is what they do. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. Because they're not just saying these things. Like like Mark Zuckerberg, the, the left-wing politics he, he has, he, this is really what he believes. He, he's not just putting on that front. He just kind of separates out the, the way his company behaves and somehow excuses it in his mind. But then looks down upon Republicans for being greedy and cold and heartless. 
it's it's mind-bogglingly hypocritical. But even putting politics aside, these these big tech companies have just become too powerful and too influential, and they just they've just decided they they make their own rules. And they shouldn't be allowed to behave in such a fashion. And the worst thing is they're abusing the public so badly and the public doesn't realize it for the most part. They're quietly abusing you behind the scenes and you don't know it. And when you do know it, they try to distract you and make you forget it. It's kind of like having a disease inside of your body that's slowly killing you, but you can't feel any pain. So you don't even realize you have it. And if you suspect you might have it, you're you're just not feeling any pain. You feel fine. You just, you have a hard time accepting that it's there or wanting to do anything about it. Yet if you have something relatively minor that's that's very uncomfortable, all you want to do, all you can think about is, is, is taking it making yourself better and taking care of that illness. So Facebook and, and these tech giants are, are like the quiet disease that is slowly killing you and, and you don't realize it's happening. I, I hate to sound so dramatic here. It, it just really bothers me to see this. And, and I was once part of this industry. I, I went to school for computer science. I didn't just go to school. I completed it. I worked in that field. I didn't work for these internet, uh, the internet companies. But I worked in the software field. And, and what Silicon Valley has become has disgusted me in many ways. The abuse of privacy, the scamming, the monolithic political thought, the censorship of opposing ideas on their platforms. very, very bad. It's very harmful to America. And the problem is, if you boycott these services and these companies, you're only hurting yourself. If I say I'm never going to watch YouTube again, and I'm never going to use Google to search, who's hurting more, me or Google? That's me. Google's the main search engine, and YouTube is the main video service. So if I hate Google and don't want to use those two services, that their main two services, uh, I'm hurting myself. I'm, I'm majorly inconveniencing myself, and, and yet whether I'm there or not individually matters nothing to them. Same with Facebook. I could delete Facebook. I could stop using it and then lose touch with a lot of people that I want to stay in touch with who mainly use Facebook to stay in touch with others. There's no really alternative to Facebook. 
So again, if, if I leave, then it hurts me a lot more than it hurts them. So at the very least, there's been talk about making these companies public utilities, but I don't know. I know some Republicans support that, but they're honestly, Republicans are usually against this sort of thing, making uh, private companies into public utilities. And I, I've seen that attempted before, and it backfires. I don't think that's necessarily the answer, but I think what is the answer is this phone call from Trader Risky. Hello. What's happening, Jeff? Well, we're near the end of the show, and I, I uh, yeah, I, I was I've been listening to in and out. I okay. had some things going tonight. So. Oh, that's fine. I, I, I know I let you know at the last minute. Yeah, I, I, I just, I, I would love to see some laws passed that not only explicitly makes a lot of this behavior illegal, but 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 severely punishes any company that engages in this behavior. There, there just are not enough laws on the books preventing a lot of things that are happening. By these uh, these tech giants, uh, big social media, and it, it it really bothers me. And we're seeing story after story, and still nothing's happening. That's it's disturbing. And I mean, with a lot of it too, you know, like all the Microsoft stuff. It's almost like they can just talk in circles. The people, you know, the politicians don't understand. Yeah, and then they'll pay off a fine, and they'll move on. Right. That's that's why there really needs to be like really stiff penalties, and, uh, and 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 very specific, aggressive laws passed to prevent a lot of these uh, abuses, uh, and and, uh, and 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 really meaningful punishments, not just as you said, just some fine, which sounds like a lot to the average person, but to these huge companies is nothing. It's got to be things that are really really. Uh, damaging to them, and and then then they'll stop. Other, otherwise, you can't just count on them doing the right thing. They've already proven that they they don't and they can't. But what could they possibly do? I don't think they're putting anybody in jail. Well, I mean, the company's not said they could go into jail. Well, they they they, they can first of all they can have ma- really massive fines for it, and, and second they they could start putting people they, they could start attaching criminal penalties to. Uh, executives who authorize these type of things. Right, but then who's doing what? I just think it would be... Yeah, I don't know what they can do. I mean, there's... there's. Um, I don't think it's too different from what they do for with, with environmental regulations and other regulations that, pre- that prevent companies from, from misbehaving and, and, and becoming a public nuisance. And I, I think that's, that Facebook ha- has become that. I think Facebook has become a public nuisance. And it, they, they need to be reined in. There's story after story coming out about these abuses that they knew they were doing. This wasn't just recklessness where they're just not thinking about things that are harming people. they are intentional things they're doing to, to screw people and to violate their privacy, to steal their data. In this case, uh, steal money from kids. It's crazy. So uh, That's all about that. I just... This has been bothering me ever since I read this story, and I, every time we get to the end of the show, I don't have the energy to do it. So I've got one more topic here, which I'm sure you can relate to, living in the L.A. area. The unusual cold that California and Nevada have been experiencing for pretty much the entire year of 2019 so far. Uh, it, it began... Appropriately on New Year's, 
New Year's is a very cold day. People complained in Las Vegas. I remember that the New Year's Eve was the coldest they had ever remembered. You know, those that spent it outside, they said they've never remembered being so cold in Las Vegas on New Year's. Indeed, New Year's Day was very cold. I had planned to go to Mount Charleston that day. I ended up not going to Mount Charleston that day because the temperature at Mount Charleston was... Zero point... Zero. Yeah, it was actually zero. It was actually zero on New Year's in Mount Charleston. But Las Vegas itself was, was cold, and that just set the tone for the year 2019 during the winter in California and Nevada. All of California and all of Nevada. So northern Nevada, which is already usually cold in the winter, I'm talking like Reno, Tahoe, uh, Carson City, that's been bitter cold. They've had negative temperatures there. Uh, Los Angeles, unusually cold. Uh, a lot of nights in the 30s, some below freezing. Uh, most days not getting to 60. And snow yesterday. Now, Trader Risky, were you anywhere where it snowed yesterday? I was not, but it was not too far away. Yeah, it was in a number of places in Southern California. Uh, it was within, like, I think about a mile or two from me. It could have easily been where I am. It just happened to not be here. The funny thing is where it snowed here, it actually snowed in places that are normally warmer than where I am. But for whatever reason, it just, uh, it's not always about the temperature outside either. It's sometimes about the where the clouds happen to be and then the temperature where the clouds are so uh it was above freezing when it was snowing but uh, first of all it was really weird something about la is that the high temperature even in the winter is almost always over 50 even during cold spells the, the high still manages to break 50 just about every day it is very rare for any day in los angeles to not be above 50 at some point and the high occurs in L.A. around you know, 2, 2.30, okay? Well, I could not believe it when I saw it was 41 degrees at 2.30 in the afternoon yesterday. 41 degrees. Uh, I'd never seen anything like that in my life in the L.A. area. The, now, the high was above that because what happened was it was like 53 and then a, a, storm, a cold storm moved in and dropped the temperature. But I had never seen between 2 and 3 in the afternoon or any time in the mid-afternoon where the temperature's in the low 40s in the L.A. area. Never. I've seen high 40. I've seen like 48, 49. I've never seen 41. And for that reason, since the storm was so cold, uh, it actually did drop snow in a number of places in Southern California. Most places it melted as soon as it hit the ground or it was kind of slushy as it was coming down. Uh, but there were some areas that actually got real snow that stuck, that melted after not too long with the sun hitting it. But uh, it did have some real snow that came down and stuck in, in some places of, of a little bit higher elevation. Uh, there's some mountains behind where I live that reach up to like 2980 feet. And I'd say from about the 2700 mark or so, maybe 2500, somewhere like that. There, the snow actually stuck, and at one point it looked like there were like a few inches of snow up there. 
And this is a place I haven't seen. There hasn't been snow there in over 10 years on that mountain. Because it's it's a mountain pretty close to the ocean. So it uh, it gets the ocean breeze and therefore it just isn't cold enough to snow up there commonly. So it's very, very unusual to see snow in the L.A. area that it hardly ever happens. Very, very rare. It, it, it'll probably be another 10 or more years till we see it again. Maybe even more than that. Uh, but it wasn't just the freak day yesterday. Uh, every day in February so far, we're at February uh, 23rd right now. Every single day in February has been colder than average in all of California and all of Nevada. Every single day. I don't, I'm not saying the entire average temperature for the entire 23 days. I mean every single day individually has not reached the average high. What about January. January, that's mostly true also. There were a few warm days in January that were like 77 degrees. And other than those, again, every single day was below average. So this has just been really an unusually cold winter for California and Nevada. You may be wondering about Las Vegas. What has Las Vegas been like? Well, if you've been paying attention to the Twitter of various poker players, of which I follow many, you probably have seen many snow videos. Las Vegas got three inches of snow on Wednesday, which is the most they've had since 2008 in one storm. And they've had several other snowfalls in 2019 where snow actually sticks to the ground for a little bit. And that's unusual. What Las Vegas usually gets, a few times per winter, they'll get snow flurries or, or some kind of wet snow that doesn't really stick to the ground. That, that happens in Vegas you know, two or three times a year. But what doesn't happen in Vegas usually is measurable snow. And especially snow that sticks to the ground more than once in the winter. Or usually at all in the winter. So people were surprised. People have I've seen so many different snow videos in the last uh, month and a half from people living in Vegas. And it's it's also been windy some days, so it's it's just been very very cold. It just it really feels like we're living in a different place than where we really are. It doesn't feel like a bitter cold winter like Chicago, or even one that's uh, moderately cold like New York. Though yesterday L.A. was colder than New York, but it, it doesn't feel like you're in L.A. where the average high temperature is 66 during the winter. And where the average low temperature is, is is forty-three or something, for the forty-five. Here you're having the the, the high is, is fifty-four and the, and the low is thirty-two, and it's windy and and some days it's a cold rain, and it's it's just it's surprised some people. I haven't even gone skiing for this reason. I I've been looking at going to Mammoth, and every time I look, the high on the mountain is fifteen degrees and the low is minus something, and I say forget it. Also, when, when you're skiing, you have additional wind from the chairlift and from skiing down the mountain, creating your own wind. So even on a calm day, if it's 15 degrees, you, you freeze your ass off. I know because I tried this two, two years ago. I went to Tahoe and it was 15 degrees, and I actually lost body heat. I actually was, by the end of the day, like my teeth were chattering, and I could tell I had, I had actually lost body heat 
So it's uh, so I haven't even gone skiing yet because it just hasn't warmed up, even though there's a lot of snow. That's good. Trader uh, Ruski, is this the coldest winter you remember in in the LA area? Did I, did I do what, Trough? Do you remember? Is this the coldest winter you remember in the L.A. Oh, area? hell yes. It has been freezing. Like, Do, do you remember I mean, one, one at all in, in your life in the L.A. area where it was consistently cold for the, for the for the two months? No, I mean, it's definitely been the longest. And, I mean, some of the nights, just going to walk the dog, you know, late, it's been, like, New York cold. That's 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 what I've noticed. So, so I'll tell yeah. you what I did. I... I finally couldn't stand it. I, I was going you know, walking the dog at late at night, and I was freezing. And it was some nights it really was actually below freezing. And so I said, you know what? And it was windy sometimes. And I said, all right, I, I can't stand this anymore. So I, I actually uh, I broke out my gloves that I used to go skiing, and I, I wear the gloves now to walk the dog late at night. And it actually helps. My, my hands were freezing out there. Yeah, no, I broke out. I mean, I dipped into the ski suitcase for, like, some long underwear. Because, you know, usually you can put on, you know, just put a a jacket that was always fine. Now it's, like, through that. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. I I don't know how how, uh, Calwatt tolerates it. He lives in in Rochester. It's so freezing there all the time. Yeah, but I think, yeah, but still, I think when you're back east, you're kind of used to it. It's just different, you know? Yeah, I think you're used to it. I I also think they're, they're more prepared, like, for wearing uh, the heavier clothing to bundle up from the cold. So I, I think you're just not used to a walking out, uh, both just feeling the temperature and just whatever clothes you have for being cool outside in the, what the normal L.A. winter is. You're just not used to going out and it's 31 and a wind chill. You're just not used to that in the L.A. area. So that's uh, – but, yeah, I, I'll walk out there and go, whoa, like I, I don't – I don't remember night after night after night being this cold going to walk the dog. And I, I know the dog doesn't like it either. It's, it's, this, uh, I have a pug, and pugs don't do well in the cold. So, And do you put a sweater on him or anything, Druff? No, he's not out that long, but he, you can tell he doesn't like it. Actually, it's, it's, it's better if he doesn't like it, though, because then he gets everything done faster and go back in. <laughs> he doesn't mess around when it's that cold. I've noticed actually what bothers him. The the actual cold temperature doesn't bother him. What he hates, he hates the uh, the rain and the wind. If it's windy and cold or rainy and cold, then he hates it. If it's just cold and, though, and calm, then he's he, he's less bothered by it. Yeah, they have a coat, so. Um, but I was reading, like, like, you're not supposed to leave pugs outside for an extended period of time if it's under 45. They just aren't said to be able to handle it that well for like a so they tell people if if you have a pug and you live somewhere it's under 45 at night in the winter you need to bring them inside and uh, i i actually had to make a decision we we, we had an there was an unusual cold spell in may last year and it was in the 40s at night which for may is unusual and the pug and our dog was having a very bad diarrhea problem and I was getting so sick of constantly cleaning it in the house. So I, I decided for those those nights he was going to live outside. He was going to sleep outside. But the problem was, of all things, when he has the diarrhea, it was uh, 
it was in the 40s. So that's when I had to do all the research online and try to figure out, you know, is it safe or not to have him out there? And I, I came up with a 45-degree thing. So it was like 48 out there. So I was like, oh, okay. So I, I put him out and I watched him to see if he was shivering or anything. So he was okay. He just bundled up in the in his little bed there and slept through it. It was fine. And then uh, during the day wasn't a problem because you know, the, the day was still it was warm. But uh, she's like, I felt a little bit bad of him being out there in the 48 degree night, but apparently that was safe for them. He just don't want to be below 45. So, I, but I wouldn't like if, like if he had diarrhea now. I don't know why I do it because like I I, we, I couldn't leave him out now the way it is. But uh, believe it or not, Trader Ruski in five days is going to be 70 degrees. I know it doesn't feel like it, but it's going it's to be 70 degrees in five days. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> My mom actually got some snow. She lives up in San Luis Obispo County. She had snow yesterday. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's uh, and, and and Barstow had snow. Not in this latest storm, but they had it in a, in a storm a few weeks ago, and they they hardly ever get snow there. A lot of snow fell in uh, Victorville and Pasadena. Or not Pasadena. Victorville and Palmdale in Pasadena. Uh, then. Uh, and then a lot of really unusual places got it yesterday. Like Agura got it, Thousand Oaks. Uh, what else? Uh, so a few others got it in the, the L.A. area. It was, there's an L.A. Times article about it, in case anybody cares. But, yeah, we're, we're not used to this here. It's not, it's not supposed to be this way. And what about people who, like, travel from New York to, to come out to L.A. to have it be warm? And then it's actually colder than where, than where they live? That, that's got to suck. Some people have the wrong impression of L.A. They just think L.A. is like Florida, where it's like the highs 80 and the low 70 every day in the winter. And it's not like that here. There is a winter here. It's just usually not like this. But uh, I don't know. Maybe in uh, maybe in early March I can go skiing. I can do a show from the ski resort. And uh, You'll be able to do it in June. Yeah, yeah, I probably can. The only problem, there will be enough snow for that, for sure. The, the only problem is, I don't like skiing in June because the, the surface of the snow is so slushy and it's it's lousy. It's, it's Yeah, but sometimes it's not that bad. I mean, they've gotten a ton. No, they have enough. They and have I like enough. skiing with a t-shirt on. I mean, that's just, I think that's the best. I see, I, I sacrifice I, a little bit, but... Yeah, see, I don't, like, I don't like when the snow is bad quality. They'll have enough. There will be a, a big, deep base there, but it's going to be very slushy. I like when the snow is powdery. So my ideal for skiing is when it's uh, in the 40s outside, like low 40s, and then, uh, you know, and then I wear enough clothing to, to you know to where it's that i keep warm but it's but it's, it's not so cold you know if it's in the 40s it's, it's not that bad like it's not uh um going skiing when it's it's in the 40s and you're you're bundled up the right right way for skiing that, that's perfect uh you can't ski in a t-shirt like that or anything but it's it's uh, that's perfect when it's like in the 20s and especially in the 10s then it then it gets really cold out there and it's no fun that's at least how i feel so as I said, I tried, I tried in Tahoe two years ago to ski at 15 degrees, and I did it. I went through the whole day, and then by the end I said, no, I'm not doing this again. Oh. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I told Benjamin that uh, Benjamin's very fascinated by this whole thing, by the 
cold temperatures and the snow, and he got to see the snow on the mountains outside our house for the first time ever. But uh, he, he's also fascinated with the concept that you could go like you could go outside and eat an ice cream cone when it's below freezing and it just won't ever melt. I did this once. As, yeah, that's funny. That's I did crazy. that. I did that once as a kid when I was. Uh, um, remember Eskimo pies? I don't know if they're there anymore. Do Eskimo pies even exist anymore? I I haven't seen them for a while. Yeah, I think they're gone. I really like them. They're these, they were the, it was a vanilla ice cream with a chocolate cover. It was similar in a way to a Klondike bar, except it was on a stick. Um, but yeah, as a matter of fact, I think once like the Klondike bar, the Dove bar, if that's what it's called, came out, I think that wiped out the uh, Eskimo pies. Yeah, I think I think that is what did it. So, uh, but I remember I had an Eskimo pie in Big Bear when it was below freezing there and I remember standing outside eating it and I was very fascinated that I could uh, I could do that and it just I could just stand there and hold it in my hand and it just wouldn't melt so. uh, that's it we're, we're done nothing nothing further to say nothing I actually finished the whole agenda I caught up on old topics uh, once in a while let me see I, I just want to make sure I didn't skip a topic I, I think I got everything no I got everything it's done it is done. We I got through. Uh, looks like eleven topics. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eleven topics. Yeah. Wow. Well, that uh, I, my prediction was correct. That uh, nothing would take too long individually, and I'd be able to finish. As far as the next show, uh, I'm thinking maybe Thursday. And then we'll go back to Wednesday after that. That's, that's what I think we'll do. I didn't expect this one would be Friday. As I said, I woke up I woke up with a sore throat on Wednesday, and I thought I was getting a cold, and I thought that was going to be it for this week. And then it didn't pan out. It just it, it went away. And I could have done the show yesterday, but I said, ah, I'm going to give it one more day to make sure it's fine. And uh, it is, so here I am. So whatever. I think the sore throat was just from dryness or something. So, I was able to do it, and I'll be back next week, provided nothing further happens. And that is that. And uh, good to have you at the end here, Trotoruski. Sorry, I didn't, wasn't available earlier. No, it's fine. You've, you've, you know, you've been here a lot recently. I'm going to go back and listen over the weekend. Yeah, oh, by the way, speaking of going back and listening... I tell you guys something. For those of you listening in the archives, I did a pretty big editing job last week because we had a big fail occur where the radio server crashed and I didn't realize it. It was around midnight when it happened. And I talked for about 10 minutes without knowing I was talking to nobody. And uh, then I got it back up. But uh, I had to kind of approximate what I was saying at the time when it crashed and uh, I asked the chat room and they helped me. So I kind of start, tried to start from where I thought I left off or at least from what people last heard of me. Well, I decided I, I didn't want all that in the final version that most people were going to hear because most people listen in the archives, not live. So I actually went and edited it to where I made it, sound perfect to where you couldn't tell there was ever a crash 
It just sounded completely like everything was continuous. I even recorded a few sentences after the show was over and edited them in so it connected better. Then I had a second problem that um, we, in between the stopping and uh, restarting, we had a whole weird phone call with Garrett and Bad Guy where I hung up on them and that all happened in between. So I said, well, crap, what can I do here? This all happened in between, but I don't want it to disrupt the segment in the archives. So what can I do about this? So what I did was I moved that whole phone call to after the, the segment we were talking about there. So I actually took that phone call from from Garrett, where at the end I hung up on both him and Bad Guy. I moved that whole thing until after into, after the segment, so it was no longer interrupting. And again, I, I, I re-recorded a few words, that uh, a few sentences that were there to make the whole thing sound more natural. And then when I was all done, you listened to it, you could never tell. You could never tell that uh, I, I moved when the phone call took place, and you could never tell that there was ever a crash in between. I, I even got a compliment on the forum from Mumbles Badly that he could never tell. And... Uh, that uh, it took some work, but it bothered me. It was, it, you know, some, some fail on this show I tolerate, but I, I just felt it sounded so crappy and it was so hard to listen to. I said, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to do a good editing job here. So may, maybe I could, uh, I could moonlight as a, as a radio show editor if I needed to. I, I did some good work there. You can go back and listen, guys. You want to go back and listen last week. Listen to the, the segment, uh, what was the topic? I'm forgetting the damn topic where it happened. Let me, let me go look this up. Now I'm curious myself. I'm, I'm kind of forgetting what topic it was that got interrupted. Let me go look. I'm going to tell you, you can go back and listen to it. And I'm telling you, you won't be able to detect at all that there was ever an edit. That it was ever kind of recorded at two separate times and that the phone call was moved. Let me get this here. I shouldn't even admit to these things. I should just let you guys all believe it all goes smoothly. It was the... Oh, it was the Joe Steers topic about the getting barred from Caesars and the lawsuit he had about that. That's what got interrupted. But if you go listen to that topic... Uh... Or if you remember from last week, like there was, if you heard in the archives, you could never tell there's an issue. But finally, about issues, I may have solved the server issues that have been plaguing Poker Fraud Alert since I switched to the new server. On Monday, the site was a disaster. On Monday, the site was down for a lot of the day. Then I put it back up and went right back down. But I got a clue in that. People reported to me that PokerFraudAlert.com was not working, but PokerFraud.com, which is uh, an alternate way into the site, which I think most of you know, but if you don't, you can try it. Just PokerFraud.com, it's identical. That PokerFraud.com was working. So I said, wait a minute, it's the same site, it's just two different ways in. How come one would work and not the other? So it made me suspect that this was a fault with the Apache web, web server I have here. 
and that it wasn't actually the server uh, the side that was running the forum that it was actually uh, just the serving of the web pages and I, I think I may have figured out the problem and fixed it I spent hours on this yesterday but I believe it's been corrected I'm not totally sure but a lot of the error and warning messages I was getting have stopped since I did this fix so if you guys start having issues, and I don't mean where you can't connect for like a minute, it's sometimes me doing something and resetting something, but if you go through at least five minutes where you can't connect to Poker Fraud Alert, uh, let me know if this is still happening. And if you do see that happen, try to go to PokerFraud.com and see if that works. And if you can connect to PokerFraud.com but not to Poker Fraud Alert, please let me know that because that'll mean the problem's not really fixed. But I, I, it really bothers me when these server issues happen, and they're not always easy to fix, because it, it doesn't say, hey, this is why I'm failing, this is why I'm having a problem. You've, you've got to dig into it and figure it out. And a lot of times it's not easy, but I think I got it. I think I finally got it. But we should, I, I thought I got it before, and I was wrong, so we'll see if I'm right this time. Well, that's it. Thank you, Trader Ruski. Appreciate you coming on at the end. Thanks for having me. So we may not have another show in uh, February. Maybe March 1st, the next show. Um, no, you know, it'll probably be on February 27th or 28th, so I'm wrong. Even if we do it on Thursday, it'll be the 28th of February. And... I'm finding what I can do is is about uh, looking like four, four and a half hours. I, I don't think I can do five anymore. I, I just don't think that because of the physical changes I've had since August that I can do it anymore for that long. But yeah, four, four and a half hours is pretty good, right? That's a lot longer than any other kind of poker podcast out there or any kind of gambling show for that matter. I really, if you think about it, how, how many shows that are on the internet last this long? I mean, yeah, you have traditional radio shows that go that long, but how many podcast internet radio shows go for four hours or more? You don't have many. Most of them are under an hour or an hour ten or an hour twenty. I mean, you, you don't have ones like this, especially on a weekly basis. So, I can't feel bad about that. Maybe one day this problem will get better. I remember I could do those eight-hour shows, but that's that's long a thing in the past. Believe it or not, the, the vocal issues I'm having may actually be that I'm talking in a different way unconsciously that's putting more stress on my voice. That's what I was told by a specialist who uh, works in this type of field. And he actually said maybe I should try to get some vocal therapy that could get me out of whatever habits are making this happen. And that might be what's causing the what's called vocal fatigue here. And I'll look into that. But in the meantime, four-hour shows or so will be the future of Poker Fraud Radio. Good night. Shalom.